Oh, hello. Hey, how's everybody doing? Uh, bonjour, uh, bienvenue, uh, welcome. This, uh, it, this is uh, John F. McDropout. I'm uh, representing the uh, Left Coast Atheists. Um, you'll have to excuse me. I'm feeling a little harried today, but uh, I'm joined by uh, Gibran Ludwig, uh, Epicurious A. Greek, and Elijah Lees, um, three of my good buddies, and we are uh, together, Sophia X. Nilo, um, gathered to discuss David Hume's uh, epic dialogue, uh, dialogues concerning natural religion. And I say epic because it's, it's pretty long. It's also very high quality, too, so I think it's, it's epic in both senses. <laughs> and fairly important and historically, too. Yep, it almost wasn't released. Uh, they, apparently, they found it... He didn't publish it during his lifetime. They found it after he uh, passed away. So oh, it's, really, uh, I, it's a I'm not, find of history. I'm not surprised. Um, I, was, I was discussing with Elijah before that, um, you know, this whole thing it seems like very unsubtle... Um, doubt uh, causing, right? I mean, this is this is a guy who probably, you know, to proclaim yourself an atheist may have been taking your life in your hands, and uh, I think uh, this this particular manuscript was really obviously weighted towards that side of the argument. Um, uh, I think it's a bit, uh, I'm not going to say uh, Hume was an outspoken theist, but I think it's uh, presumptuous to say he was an atheist. I think Hume would be more inclined to say he was a skeptical, agno uh, skeptical agnostic. He was skeptical on matters of metaphysics in general to the point of not denying causation, but to the point of saying causation is not something that's a part of reason, but only part of experience. It's foolish to say that it will or can go on. So he was skeptical about metaphysical claims um, across the board. It doesn't mean he denied the notion of causation. It, or the principle of causation just meant it was something we knew through inductive means and probability, not necessarily through a priori reasoning or reasoning before reasoning beforehand. So God and causation, all, a lot of other metaphysical claims, Hume would be very skeptical of in general. Well, okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, although I would like to note that, uh, at least according to the Wikipedia article, which may be a very questionable quality, I don't know, uh, they say that his his um, he was he was uh, indicted by the church um, for being uh, a heretic, and they defended him on the grounds that he was an atheist, and therefore he was outside of their jurisdiction, uh, outside of the church's jurisdiction, um, and and therefore he couldn't be a heretic. So I'm I'm I, he, he it didn't seem like he brought a huge objection to that, you know, given that uh, it was it's best just to say in terms of what was considered quote unquote a, an atheist being a. Uh, being called that didn't necessarily mean what it means today. Uh, for example, Thomas Hobbes was also considered an atheist, although he did believe in God. Here's the thing. As a materialist, he just believed God had some form of body, just like me or you. He would say the same about spirits. There's nothing incorporeal, uh, as he understood it to be. But, the, but people still branded him as being an atheist, despite the fact that he would believe in such notions. I'm not saying Hume had these exact same beliefs, but rather... Um, to call someone an atheist just meant something a little different than what we would say today. I would uh, put him still in the agnostic category, even though in terms of the books or in terms of how one might categorize him as an atheist, then it would be far different that now. Sure. I, I guess my, my point would be that I don't think that that is dissimilar from how, how a number of atheists would describe themselves nowadays, or at least Hume's atheism. Certainly Hobbes mm -hmm. was, was a different case entirely. Um, but in the case of Hume, though, it seems that his general skepticism is similar, at least, to 
some atheists, not most. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I would agree with you that most atheists are fairly unlike Hume, but I, I think he's his atheism is much closer to mine than it is to to, to most people. Uh, maybe um, where I I. I, I, I don't maintain the impossibility of these claims. I would maintain that they are possibly outside of the realm of human reason, um, that there is not necessarily particularly good reason to believe these claims, but I would not maintain that they're impossible, um, nor would I suggest that I know that they're false. So I, I'm, I'm, I, all I'm saying is I think maybe some atheists would be similar to him, not all, but okay. that's one. Fair enough. And, and I would describe myself as an agnostic, weak atheist, just so you know. So that would be yeah, something. I'm, I'm thinking, sure. Fair enough. I think Hume would uh, would probably capture that kind of notion. I think we could agree on that. But I just want to uh, sure. lay things out about his background, not to mention how he would have viewed the concept of God in terms of his uh, criticisms and then skepticisms about uh, metaphysical notions and ideas. No, and, and thank you for doing that. I, I agree with you. Um, but there, there's another thing that uh, Ozzy said to me uh, about Hume, and I think he said it to several of us. He he said, and again, this is uh, Ozzy's word. I, I trust Ozzy for the most part. So, but uh, just just so I can cite my so cite my source. He said that uh, around uh, it got to the point where Hume was regarded as so much of a skeptic that he couldn't he couldn't get employment anywhere because he was he was too close to being an atheist. Uh, in the eyes of people, that the greatest living philosopher couldn't become employed anywhere as a philosopher. Um, I yeah, I, again, trust that as much as you you trust Ozzy. <laughs> I well, I do trust Ozzy, and no, that part is true. For he actually had to work some time in France as a tutor in order to uh, make ends meet. Yeah, I think the important thing, um, as far as going forward with this conversation anyway, is that he he's he's sort of mischaracterized now as being this this huge atheist figure, right? Or that his atheism was kind of his central um, aspect of his philosophy when when really it was, his skepticism was so much broader than that. And you see a lot more of it in this article than, you know, someone who just looks at somebody and thinks atheist philosopher is going to be expecting to see. And he makes a strong distinction between the concept of atheism and skepticism. Uh, the dialogue very early on, someone accuses all skeptics... Yeah as being atheists in disguise, as, as saying they're dishonest and calling themselves skeptics. They're all really just atheists. And he defends the idea that those are two uh, separate concepts. Right. I think, it's, I think it's important to point out that, I mean, he at no point makes any of the characters involved here atheists. I mean, they are, they are considered to be, to be uh, theists. And uh, so, I mean, um, it's, uh, I mean, maybe we can just get into the, to the background here. And, uh, I mean, right at the, uh, at the beginning, the intro is um, two people who kind of only appear, I think, twice in the story. They're basically just the, the teller and the listener, right? I mean, the, the storyteller and the listener is basically the, the characters of Pamphilus and Hermippus, right? Um, so that's, that's ostensibly supposed to be who um, is writing the story down um, in, the, in the future, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I, that, I don't think they're um, mentioned by any of the three main characters in the dialogue. Except maybe I think one time in passing, are they? Um, is, is the yeah, student mentioned there? Yeah, yeah. Pamphilus is is the student that is sort of um, he's he's observing the the dialogue between the three people, uh, and he's I believe he's the student of Cleanthes. Uh, and I, right at, right off the bat, I mean, right at the end of his his intro, he says. Um, the remarkable contrast in their characters further raised your expectations while you oppose or while you oppose the accurate philosophical turn of Cleanthes to the 
careless skepticism of Philo, or compared either of their dispositions with the rigid, inflexible orthodoxy of Demia. Uh, so that's that's the that's three characters that he's discussing, um, and from that I think you can clearly see that he's he's kind of supposed to be siding with Cleanthes in this dialogue. Um, he he seems to think that you know the accurate philo philosophical turn of Cleanthes is would probably it it comes off to me anyways as as seeming more more uh, more likely than the careless skepticism or rigid inflexibility. Um, those those descriptive words don't seem to suggest to me any sort of confidence. No, I agree. I think that the, the, the student here is, is uh, siding with his teacher. Um, yeah, I would agree with that interpretation. Um, yeah, and I, I think that might be, I mean, I think that might be why it was never published originally. Um, I, think it, I think it becomes very clear that the student sort of um, is actually siding with Philo in the long run. Like, I think uh, mm -hmm. the focus seems so put onto Philo that I think that the the intention becomes too obvious, and I think that might be why he might not have uh, published it to begin with. Um, I think that Philo definitely is supposed to represent Hume's view. I'm not sure if I would say that the student is supposed the, that the the supposed author of the of the dialogue or the reporter of the dialogue, the student is supposed to have um, sort of come to Philo's side. And by the end of it, I don't I'm not sure about that. Um. Yeah, I'll confess that I haven't quite finished the whole thing, and so I, I cannot say whether or not he goes over to his side. Um, but it does seem that, from what I've read, Philo does make a stronger case. Well, he definitely uh, puts both other parties in in a in a in a difficult position, anyways, um, and undermines both their both their cases. So there's there's definitely this feeling like Philo comes out on top. But I, I don't know if yeah, if you could make that case a hundred percent. It's actually very interesting being a three-way dialogue because there are some subjects in which two of the three agree, and there are some subjects which um, the person who disagrees finds himself to be in a bit of a corner, but it always turns around where everyone's scrutinizing the other person. So it feels so it can feel uh, pretty tough for any of these characters to engage in dialogue when their position is contra to both the other two participants. It was a really interesting decision, and uh, I really I think it turned out really well. Um, the particular PDF that I'm reading from, and I think uh, at least uh, John and Elijah are reading from, if not you as well, Epicurus, um, it, it doesn't make it particularly clear who the speaker is at any given moment, which you, was a little you, bit annoying. You have to use kind of um, the, what is it, like when, they're, when they say says Philo or, or uh, you know, observed Theon's uh, Cleanthes and stuff like that. Um, so yeah. you, you kind of have to use the the clues in the text, but yeah, you're right. I mean, um, it'll it'll start a sentence, and you start to wonder, is this who? Which character is this? And you and you start to wait to see if it's it'll say said Cleanthes at the end of the sentence, and you're like, you know, I I feel like he loses a bit of the punch maybe of each person's speech by doing that. It's but, usually it's usually easier to read dialogues when they're in the form of a script, uh, such yeah. as two such oh, yeah. as the actors could read them out and know exactly what they would say at each part. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Um, and actually, I, I I did that for a while, but there is there's at least one part where it is it is the only way to tell who is speaking is kind of by comparing the views in there to to the characters' views because it actually isn't written in the text anywhere. Or maybe I missed it. Um, but but for the most part, it is clear, and it became more clear as I read on. But there's a part fairly early on, I think, where the ambiguity is pretty high. Yeah, I think I think there's one of them there where it's like it's they're talking kind of back and forth really fast and like there's there's just really no it's almost hard to tell where the where the sentence ends and begins for for each one. Yeah, cool. I, yeah, I think that's uh, it's good. It's good points all. Um, well, I, if we're getting into the dialogue here, um, 
the, the, it starts out with Pamphilus sitting in the library with Cleanthes and joined by Demia and Philo. Um, now, um, the, the first topic that they bring up is, I believe, what is it here? Uh, Demia uh, pays Cleanthes compliments on the upbringing of uh, Pamphilus, if I remember correctly. Right, uh, and so um, he's he's giving them a, a compliment on it, and uh, and he's asking him basically. Um, uh, I've observed this with my own children, and uh, I want to communicate uh, maxim to you with I've learned, and uh, and we'll find out how how much it agrees with how you educated Pamphilus. Um, so he says um, the students of philosophy ought first to learn logics, then ethics, next physics, and last of all the nature of the gods. This science of natural theology, according him, being the most profound and obtrusive of any, requiring, uh, required the maturest judgment of its students, and none but the mind enriched with all other sciences can safely be entrusted with it. Um, so is that... Um, who, who is talking in that, in that sentence? That's uh, Demea. So Demeas is yeah. Demeas. Yes, yeah, Demeas. So that's Demeas. So he believes that everybody should be educated in all the sentences or all the sciences before being uh, brought into theology. Um, and he says that because you need maturity of mind in order to deal with the uh, just sort of the um, what is it? Sort of a uh, what word am I looking for here? A mystical. Uh, the finesse. Yeah, exactly. You you have to you have to grasp something which isn't easy to grasp and thus seasoning one's mind with as much knowledge beforehand yeah. w is necessary. Just to give you a little background to the history of it, um, the notion of putting theology at the forefront of the sciences was very common in this area, in this era, especially uh, b before uh, modern philosophy. In such a time, theology was considered and was crowned what is known as the queen of the sciences as its position because all other sciences relied on interpreting that specific science. So you imagine a solar system where theology is the sun, all the sciences were going around it and basically had to make sense of what it is in the middle. However, it wasn't later until with two philosophers, Rene Descartes and David Hume, where the shift kind of changed from being a top-down model where everything started on the top, you had your position, and you had to work your, and you had to work down from there, Rather, it started from a bottom-up model, with because uh, first of all, you had David Hume, who was at one hand criticizing everything you built up, and on the other hand, you had Rene Descartes, who starts with the foundation of thinking, "I think, therefore, I am. Let's go from here." Right. Yeah. So yeah, this transition at that time. And I, I would kind of um, argue that that philosophy should take the position as the center. Not not as the center, really, but as sort of the, the, the fabric from which every other science is hewn. Uh, it is it is the foundation. But but again, this is not necessarily That's the position everyone yeah. takes. This is a long argument, potentially. I, I wonder if that, that um, sort of top-down approach um, would represent Cleanthes' position a lot better. Maybe that's where this conversation kind of gets started. Uh, I mean, it seems like it would, right? Uh, yeah, I think uh, Philo doesn't uh, we don't really get into Cleanthes' position, but Philo um, asks him right away uh, about. He, he kind of goes, you know, are you so late in teaching your children the principles of religion? Is there no danger in their neglecting or rejecting altogether those opinions, in which they have heard so little during the whole course of their education? Um, and I, yeah. I, I, I wonder if that's if that's maybe Cleanthes' approach to to um, 
initially induct people into the religion first of all um, a very much like like you were saying a bottom up approach to it it seems like he would be i mean he 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 wants to sort of connect the two um the sciences and and or at least by way of epistemology at least connecting the sciences and um religion a lot closer than the other characters seem to want to do uh, another big thing with uh with Demi's point here is is he actually has two um there's two reasons why uh why he he suggests this way of um of of saving the best for last sort of with theology, as as being the the, the final thing you learn and, and the second his second purpose is uh, in my opinion more interesting in which he wants students to to realize that human reason uh, that philosophy the sciences are are in inadequate in themselves right he wants them to see the holes in it the errors with it he wants them to basically build a shaky foundation for these other um, areas, and then at the end say, but hey, you can relax because here's theology, here's the, these, uh, what he calls later, I like I like the term, adorable mysteries of uh, theology. That um, <laughs> So all of the, uh, you know, I, I realize, you know, you, you've probably come to this point where you're, you're, you're wondering how we can know anything, how we can trust anything, but hey, you know, you can, you can... I think the adorable there is being used in a sort of archaic sense. To it mean is, yeah. Adorable, as in yeah. thing that to is adore. worthy of adoration. Yeah, worthy yeah. of adoration is yeah. exactly what it means. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's fun to say though, right? No, yeah, I yeah. but I, I like I like it because like yeah, it makes me think of a big fuzzy teddy bear in the sky, just this adorable <laughs> god up there. It's. Uh, I think what he's trying to do is just highlight the fact that hey, if you're going to enter into a discipline and you're going to find holes in it, just be aware that all these other disciplines you're studying have the same holes and. Uh, mysteries that you're trying to comprehend as well, so I think he might be trying to go with that approach as as well, uh, just because uh, you could not make an argument that there's perhaps a mystery or something currently unknown or maybe unknowable in uh, in any discipline. And just to say, uh, mystery doesn't necessarily mean a throw up your hands, I don't know approach. It's to say that the prospect of knowing may be mysterious. For example, in uh, in the philosophy of mind, there's actually a group called the New Mysterians who are naturalists, but they propose to say that the nature of the mind is completely unknowable because consciousness requires consciousness. Uh, basically, they formulate their own arguments to make to give credence to a mysterious to a Mysterian position. So mm. it is not. So it's not just a way of saying we give up or we don't know. It's just a way of saying there are some things you just might not be able to grasp. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, Demius seems to be, and I think the the point that Elijah was kind of making there, I think maybe that he's kind of setting up his children for a form of presuppositionalism, where they realize that, that with theology they can they can kind of fill in all these 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 holes. Um, it's it's an explicit indoctrination, and he he basically identifies it as such. You know, I mean, he says you know he wants to make sure that. That there's no by the time they get to learning about theology, there's no competition from philosophy, right? There's nothing there that's going to undermine it because he's already taken care of it. He's already been showing them all along the way that you know these are not trustworthy forms of coming to know things. Actually, funny enough, Demaeus, who uh, who is representing this dialogue, is actually very familiar. I'm not sure David Hume used this uh, other thinker as an example, but there was another philosopher at this time who was a very conservative Christian who was heavily influenced by David Hume, known as Johann Hamann. Who hmm. was who was essentially a counter Enlightenment thinker, basically contrary to the Enlightenment way of thinking. He actually used David Hume saying, "Look, your ideas about what you can learn in nature and science are completely unshaky, but 
because it's so unshaky and we have our own intuitions to deal with, which we must confess, then with just a then the theist or the thinker is not no more wrong or right than the than the skeptic who denies it or who mm -hmm. uses reason because either way they're going to be empty. Um, Hammond was a a very interesting person who uh, garnered a lot of influence from him, and this is actually where you can see Demaeus and uh, Philo actually agreeing on uh, some points of uh, attacking uh, who the third uh, who was uh, the third uh, man in the dialogue again? Uh, Cleanthes, Cleanthes, yeah. right? Um, Cleanthes yeah. uh, going up against Cleanthes because they actually both have a skepticism of uh, natural of religion. Trying to use yeah, of trying to use natural religion as a way of proving God. Uh, Johann Greg Hyman also opposed the notion as well uh, huh. for these exact uh, reasons. Uh, Epicurus, um, I'm curious. Uh, I noticed that Demaeus seems to be uh, putting forth divine simplicity later on in the dialogue. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Did, does his uh, version differ from yours? Uh, which part of the dialogue is this? Well, uh, it, it, it's coming up here anyways. When he starts All right, to, uh, we'll, to, we'll to, see when we get there. It, it's, uh, it's in the comparison of the... Of, of, of our it's traits. But part three or four, I think. An important thing to bring in here is the uh, this idea of fideism. Um, Demea is a fideist. Um, basically, they believe explicitly that only faith is the only way to really know anything about God, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there is it's, – it's been the thorn in the side of apologists. Um, if you take apologetics class in college, uh, which I did – one of the first things you'll hear on um, like day one or two is they'll take a brief overview of fideism and why and, and the basic objections that fideists have to apologetics, right? That's the way uh, that's that's where Demia is coming from. And Philo is much closer to being a fideist than he is to being anything like uh, Cleanthes would be. And fideism is actually a very if you look at the history of philosophical thought, there have been a lot of great and terrific thinkers who have considered themselves fideists. Um, Johann Hyman was I'll put him as one uh, so was Blaise Pascal, who a uh, brilliant mathematician and thinker, not to mention Soyan Kierkegaard, the man who single-handedly started, well, okay, not single-handedly, but was the earliest proponent of existentialist philosophy. So it's not a it's not this completely bankrupt fountain of thought that people might have of it. It, it actually has a pretty rich and interesting intellectual tradition. Totally. Um, I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm 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 curious to get back to what you were saying there. Like I uh, I got um, like I I'm reading this just again here with with kind of new eyes. And um, it says um, while they pass through every other science, I still remark the uncertainty of each part, the internal dis the eternal disputations of man, the obscurity of all philosophy, the strange ridiculous. Yeah, I mean so it, yeah, I mean that's that's very much a uh, a, a fideistic uh, viewpoint, isn't it? That um, that it that it's the the mysteriousness of it is is the almost the point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I would agree there. Yeah, um, as far as undermining other forms of of science and stuff, that's not explicitly fideistic. Um, but yeah, his conclusion there that um, that 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 there is this mysterious quality to it that can only be apprehended by faith, and and usually they bring in a moral. Uh, a moral aspect of this too that it's almost um, kind of like presuppositionalists do. It's almost improper or or morally repugnant in a way to say that anything beyond faith is uh, necessary. I mean, look at Downing Thomas, right? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And it's very much like um, he 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 talks about uh, the uh, tamed minds to proper submission um, and and self diffidence. So you're you're talking about um, instilling 
almost um, institutional doubt in the um, in your yeah. in your ability to to gather knowledge uh, or to gather that particular knowledge, anyways. Yeah, it says. Um, Nor apprehend. No yeah. He says here, I have no longer any scruple of opening them to them the greatest mysteries of religion, nor apprehend any danger from that assuming arrogance of philosophy, which may lead them to reject the most established doctrines and opinions. <laughs> did, did, you just, did you just say that to piss Gibran off? <laughs> Establish. Uh, if you can, you can add the phrase of the church at the end of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, but uh, yeah, assuming arrogance of philosophy you. was the. I like I put a little a little smiley face in Gibran's <laughs> name beside that when I read it. Um, but uh, yeah, exactly. It's uh, you know it's 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 interesting that he he um, he acknowledges that um, that philosophy seems to be um, moving in that direction, um, and I think that's you know that's a very it's a very telling telling admission right away that to put those words in in uh, Demia's mouth that he kind of acknowledges the um, the the problem with with philosophy, right? Um, I think Cleanthes would very much say that philosophy is uh, is can be used to uh, provide evidence of God. Um, you mean the problem with the relationship be. between theism and philosophy on the behalf of the theists? Is that what you're referring to? The problem with philosophy? Right. Exactly. Um, I, 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 I'm, that's what I'm saying. Uh, their problem with the philosophy, like what what they would consider. The re like a reason against it. Um, uh, Demia seems to think he, he acknowledges that um, philosophy is undermining the theology, uh, and and Cleanthes I think would affirm that uh, theology in and philosophy are going together. What do you uh, think about this, Epicurus? Uh, do you think that philosophy and theology are uh, are compatible, or as oh, Demia and theology? Theology, okay, uh, first of all, I think we have to strike a difference between what is known as natural and revealed theology. Revealed yeah. theology is essentially what Demius might be arguing for in this case. For example, um, I get my I get my uh, theological beliefs by, through, via revelation through the church, through scripture, through um, XYZ, through an authority figure, through uh, historical through historic through uh, previous precedents. However, natural theology, which yeah. is something Climaeus might be arguing for, is rather theology yeah, that is helped establish through natural thinking and ideas. For example, when you explore the nature of the universe, then you could essentially analogize it towards something like, let's say, a machine, which Climaeus does. And by uh, doing this, uh, Clim and by uh, doing this, Climaeus essentially. Uh, argues that, hey, just by using your faculty of reason alone, you could actually deduce that a god exists and yeah. that such a god has such a nature through his, through the, looking at the design. So, so do you think that natural theology is worthwhile? I think it is, in terms of, as long as metaphysics is worthwhile. Because theology, if the earliest work I could uh, remember using the word theology, there might be an earlier one, in terms of uh, Greek metaphysics is from Aristotle, who developed it in a bit uh, in his chap in his uh, work, the metaphysics. Theology is a subset of metaphysical thought, and which is essentially a discipline of what is the nature of reality or what is the fundamental no, nature of reality. So, in terms of that, yes, I do think it is worthwhile. Are there conclusive point points in theology that uh, everyone agrees on? Not necessarily. And there's two camps in metaphysics. There's the theologian who argues that there is a god. Through metaphysical understanding, and there's the a theologian or a theologian who would, using metaphysical principles, argue the contrary. 
or argue that that it doesn't have anything to do with the subject. I mean, no, what, no, one, it, no. Even the apiologian would concede it has something to do with the subject. No, 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 no. One could argue. Hold on, hold on. Sorry, let me be clear. One could argue that their metaphysical scheme is is agnostic towards the existence of a god. One could argue that metaphysically speaking, it doesn't matter. Potentially, mm -hmm. um, I could conceive of schemes where it doesn't matter. For example, I don't think there may be good ones. Just one could argue that position. So I'm, I'm, I'm oh, saying. where it's just an unneeded extra hypothesis uh, that you could slice away using like uh, an Occam's razor principle. Yeah, but I mean that's not that would not be a case of Occam's razor being like Occam's razor has nothing to do with the complexity of the explanation. Um, it has to do with with I mean not, purely, not multiplying explanandums or things that are explanatory. Or, yeah, but but I mean the thing is, is that this isn't an explanatory feature of the model. That's that's the point. I mean oh, you can't say oh well um, therefore it doesn't exist because it's unnecessary. There could just be unnecessary parts of oh, reality. Oh, yeah. all right. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Is that I don't think Occam's oh. razor succeeds in shearing away a deistic god at all. Oh, that, and, oh, you mean. Would there be metaphysicians who would argue that metaphysics could not could not uh, tell you whether there was or was not a god? Well, I, I'm pointing out that I think that a metaphysical position could be agnostic to the position of whether or not there is a god. You could conceive of a type of god in in the terms of a metaphysical scheme that would not have any effect on that scheme. Uh, for example, if you have a, a god that's completely um, self-interested, that simply doesn't interact with reality in any way, right. uh, then it really wouldn't matter. It might ultimately exist, but it wouldn't have any effect on the rest of the metaphysical scheme. And as such, the rest of it is completely independent of the question. That's that's the point I'm making, is that it could potentially be... Uh, there could be some systems that don't necessarily uh, claim the inexistence of a god. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. In terms of uh, that happening, a metaphysician would just argue would just argue that God is unneeded, or there's no dis decisive proof. No, he wouldn't say that the discipline is apathetic to the notion. He would. Uh, no, he sorry, would, I, I was just saying their theory would be apathetic. That's that's what I mean. Oh yeah, they they could yeah. argue an apathetic approach to it, but they'd still have to counter I, I, the they would still have to counter the theologians' claims. Is what I'm no, saying. and I, and I um, I'm sorry, I, I I should not have explained it by saying. They believe the discipline. I, I meant to say their schemes. I, I do apologize. Yeah, okay. that, that's yeah. where the confusion came from. Yeah, yeah, you would be right in that. There are people who are ap who are apathetic, but uh, ah just means absence of theology, not necessarily sure. an opposition towards it. Sure, fair enough. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, we can we can probably get back to the uh, <laughs> to the main discussion here. Um, I, I think. Um, you know, Philo is is clearly a very uh, he's he's the he's the skeptic, right? Um, so he's clearly got to be very skeptical of of all claims. Um, um, he he kind of picks up on on the idea that that uh, Demia is is worried about the ideas of philosophy undermining uh, theology, and I think he says, um, you know, your your precaution of seasoning your child's minds early with piety is quite is certainly very reasonable and no more than is requisite in this profane age profane and irreligious age but what I truthfully admire about your plan of education is your method of drawing advantage from the very principles of philosophies and learning by which inspiring pride and self-sufficiently have commonly in all ages been found so destructive to the principles of religion um, so he, he pretty much just affirms you know what Demia is kind of afraid of there right that um, I mean you're right like it's 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 almost it's almost uh, it's it's historical that that the uh, you know questioning these things will um, you know produce pride and self-sufficiency, and thus people will question the uh, the doctrines. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of saw this as kind of a subtle like uh, slide against religion here from Philo. Even though I think Philo is supposed to be genuinely agreeing, I think you know from Hume's perspective, this is kind of a clever way of saying, "Oh yeah, you're right. If you let them learn too much, you're gonna have problems when you're trying to teach them about religion." Yeah. Uh, amusingly, yeah. though, um, Bonson well, could, read, could read it the opposite to, way. If you tried to learn too, I would think if uh, you tried to learn too much about theology without exploring other disciplines. And being aware that no discipline is perfect or has an or has an ample enough uh, way of claiming reason, then you'd be more sympathetic to uh, the what's going on in theology, for example, as being its own discipline with its own set of parameters that is in itself uh, not sufficient to give evidence or reason. Yeah, um, I, I I actually think, ironically though, uh, Elijah, a uh, presuppositionalist could argue the exact opposite thing. Uh, they could argue that, in fact, it, it is it is indeed bad to be too reliant on human reasoning, and that that Philo isn't isn't agreeing with him. Ironically, to slight him, he's very serious. Uh, so you know that he yeah he sure it, from that perspective yeah you could yeah. you could easily make that point. I mean, he kind of goes on to talk about um, I mean that those who are unacquainted with science and profound inquiry hold a contempt for philosophy, um, but you know that they don't really know they you know they don't really know and they just kind of hold fast. They they use that um, that contempt for philosophy to hold fast to their theology. But I mean, he goes new. into you're right exactly, and he kind of just he's like, okay, that's fine, you know, whatever, that's that's good. It's no difficult for that. Um, but he says. Um, you know, uh, there's still one expedient to left to prevent this profane liberty um, after we have abandoned ignorance. Um, so he's talking about, you know, once we've gotten past the idea of not understanding what the arguments are, um, we can, we you know, we move into this idea that, you know, we need to find a way to um, keep ourselves from uh, this profane liberty, uh, you know, to prevent, prevent this profane liberty, he calls it. Um, you know, a way of, to keep us from being blasphemous um, is probably a, a better way of putting it. Um, so yeah, okay. So he he goes into it and he says, um, to in order to do that properly, he's talking about um, let us become thoroughly sensible of the weakness, blindness, and narrow limits of human reason. Let us duly consider its uncertainty and endless contra contra contrarieties, even in subjects of common life and practice. Let the errors and deceits of our senses be set before us, the insuperable, insuperable difficulties which attend first principles in all systems. So I mean, he goes into a, a quite a big list there um, of of all the things that we have kind of dealt with um, or or doubt about. Sorry to rhyme there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to find it on my uh, document here exactly where we are. Sure, I got so, I got it in paragraph ten or nine. Sorry, paragraph nine. He he could have been more expedient and simply said everything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he he goes into everything, you know, the ideas of matter and cause and extension and space and time and motion and, in word, quantity of all kinds, the object of the only science that can fairly pretend to any certainty or evidence. I wouldn't, well, actually, I would go farther than that, and I would say that one could doubt mathematics as well. Uh, one, one could doubt not just the object of mathematics or the supposed object of mathematics from the point of view of an empiricist like Hume, but, but even mathematics itself. Uh, he would argue probably that, that mathematics is, is empirical generalizations. Um, but I'm not sure I agree with him there, but, but even without that assumption, one could doubt mathematics even. Yep, and there are mathematical fictionalists and anti-realists who do take that position. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, he, I mean, he even says, I mean, once once these topics are displayed on their full light, as as they are by some philosophers and almost all divines, who can retain such confidence in this frail faculty of reason as to pay any regard to its determinations in points so sublime, so abstruse, so remote from common life and experience, when the coherence of its parts of a stone, or even the composition of parts which renders it extended, when these familiar objects, I say, are so inexplicable and contain circumstances so repug repugnant and contradictory, what assurance can we decide concerning the origin of worlds or trace their history from eternity to eternity? Like, I, I love that, I love that, actually, that phrase. That's why I wanted to read it. Um, I mean, he's 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 really going into this this idea of of, of skepticism and 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 the idea of certainty, which is I mean a huge topic, right? Um, but I mean, he's pointing out that our that our life experience doesn't really cover uh, infinite things. We don't really have the omni experience that is sort of required to talk about these um, these things in experiential ways. So we're very yeah. we're, we get very abstract when we're talking about them. And this is one of Hume's favorite points to make. Um, is is this this absolute um, lack of analogy between um, what we have experienced and what we can comprehend, and any notion of, and and he he brings it down to any, any supernatural. In other you know writings, talks about just supernaturalism in general, whether it be God or and or even things like you know the beginning of the universe, right? I mean anything that is that doesn't have some sort of experiential analogy. I mean. And considering how much trouble we have just with our experiences, right, just with induction normally, I mean, to try to apply it to something outside of our experience that we can't even have a mental picture of, you know, you know, that we're going to be in trouble right off the bat, I think. The very, um, yeah, the very kind of specific point that he makes essentially is that, that, that one's analogy of something like um, of the relationship between humans and what we create and God in the universe uh, cannot be made without making a huge leap uh, in analogy. He basically says that, that, that one can use these sorts of uh, inductive analogies, mm -hmm. but every time we change a variable, even a relatively small one, it, it behooves us to test and see if that situation is still like the, the thing that we're analogizing it to. Uh, if he, he says, I mean, he goes into a list of things, of, of, of circumstances that need to be checked and tested uh, as we slowly move the analogy from one thing to another. And he points out that any one small change can lead to a huge change in behavior because so little is known. Um, and so to make the analogy between like humans we create and, and God and the universe is just making too many leaps to have any confidence at all that the analogy holds. Uh, and he also... Really, the thing that I loved most about reading this is he talks about how there may very well be intelligences on other worlds that we 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 don't know anything about that may see things completely differently, and and that was that was I found that lovely because he I, I did not expect to see something like that in something three hundred years old. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's he's way ahead of his time as far as these ideas go, right? I mean I think we I think we all kind of we're struck by how modern a lot of this seems when when you you know when you look at it from other readings of the of the same time. In other, in all fairness, Joseph Smith also noted that we might have life on other planets as well, but that was in a theological context, so not sure if that one should count. You also thought that there were Quakers on the moon or Quaker-like people on the moon. Memory serves. <laughs> okay. Prove him wrong, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay, so so next, um, I mean, Clanthes gets to respond, and we kind of get a little more idea of kind of where he's um, coming from. Um, 
He says, um, you propose then, Philo, to erect religious faith on philosophical skepticism, and you think that if certainty or evidence be expelled from every other subject or inquiry or of inquiry, it will all retire to these theological doctrines, and they will acquire a superior force and authority. Now, yeah. uh, and then he says right after, whether your skepticism be as absolute and sincere as you insincere as you pretend, we shall learn by and by when the company breaks up. We shall see then whether you go out at the window or uh, out at the door or the window, uh, and whether you really doubt if your body has gravity or can be injured by its fall, according to popular opinion, uh, derived by our fallacious sentences, senses and more fallacious experience. This is the. Uh, I mean, if we we've the talked radical about, skepticism. We've right? talked about this. Uh, we talk about presuppositionalism quite a bit on past shows. So just to bring this up, this is the kind of thing you hear all the time. You know, you you can take a radical skeptic skeptical view. You know, or what I interpret from what I hear you say to be a radically skeptical view. But good luck living consistently with it. You know, you're still going to look both ways before you cross the street. Yeah, and I actually think that um, Hume does a really good job of of arguing that. That, that kind of skepticism um, is not the logical conclusion of skepticism. Um, and, and so I, 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 I actually think he does a great job of refuting the presuppositionalists that would argue that. Yeah, point. yeah, me too. Yeah, I think he does a very good job. It's subtle, though. It's not, it's not, I think, super easy to communicate. Like, a lot of this stuff, because it's in dialogue form without really going over all of it, I mean, he really doesn't waste much time in this. He really, like... There, few words are wasted, and so it's kind of hard to go into the subtleties of his argument without just reading the whole thing out. <laughs> maybe our maybe our group dialogues could learn something from his, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, well, he's uh, he's he's got the advantage of only having a single author, um, where we're oh, trying true. to collaborate. Yeah, um, but uh, but I but I agree. I mean, he's uh, he's really packing it in here, and I mean, these arguments don't. They, he doesn't take any time to kind of introduce any topics or or background information. I mean, these guys are going straight into the abstract uh, abstract uh, uh, ideas of of these of these uh, these positions. Um, so you're right. I mean, definitely. Uh, and I mean, it, just to go along with you know total skepticism. I mean, he he continues on about you know uh, you know total skepticism. Is going to be impossible to to preserve uh, throughout a common life, right? I mean, he says, um, external objects press upon him, passions solicit him, his philosophical melancholy dissipates, and even the utmost violence upon his temper will not be able during any time to preserve this poor appearance of skepticism. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's you know he. Um, I guess he just kind of just starts nailing, tries to nail in the coffin, you know, put the put the nail in in the in the argument here. Um, he's 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 attempting to to pin Philo down in uh, in the in the idea that you know your your skepticism is going to lead to absurdity um, and atheism too, which is obviously a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, if I'm not, if I'm, guys, atheism really. Sorry, go if, on, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's in, in that same section. Um, he 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 sort of draws this comparison with other schools of sort of extreme philosophies of some kind or another, and says yeah. that look, no one who who tries to hold to these um, extremist views is capable of living consistent with them, right? Even if it's not as extreme as radical skepticism. Anytime you try to take this 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 narrow—I don't know if I want to use the word narrow, but I'm going to use it anyway. That's a narrow view of of things. It's very, very hard to live consistently with them as a human being, right? Even just in your in your mind. I mean, forget about you know trying to figure out if you should go out the door or the window. Just thinking about it that way all the time as a human being is impossible. 
Um, he compares the, the the radical skepticism to the Peronians and Stoics. Um, right. And actually, yeah, I this is the this is the part that was in, this is the very particular part of the dialogue where I had a hard time following who was talking. Um, I I thought it was uh, Philo that made the comparison to the Peronians and Stoics, and then Cleanthes who who ran with that. Um, or am I mistaken? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think so. It looks like. Um, no, I think it was Clanthes that brought them up. If I'm not mistaken. Because I, he said something about I will. Because ex- I, I know there's a part where it says Clanthes said, uh, "I will accept your comparison to the Stoics, but we'll turn it around on you," or something like that. And that made me think that it wasn't Clanthes that introduced it. No, yeah, Cleanthes. When he says, "I allow of your comparison with Stoics and skeptics," replied Philo, which means that Cleanthes oh, did introduce it. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm a little curious about the Peronians and the Stoics. I'm. I'm not really that familiar with them. Um, it, 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 Eddie, do you have any information on that? And you're you're a wealth Stoics, of that sort of source. Yeah. yeah. The Stoics I know about. They're essentially an ethical group that focused on notions of uh, of ethics through ideas of virtue or virtuous living. For example, they uh, lived simple lives. They would uh, refrain from exaggerated sexual uh, context. I believe they were opposed to masturbation, uh, as an example. Of, uh, I, I just feel like it was <laughs> Bad place to start. Bad place to start. But, yeah, essentially they were people who pushed lives around living virtuously and, and living simply. The other group I'm not too familiar with. Yeah, Peronian. they were uh, they were skeptics. I know that. I don't know the specific details, but they were a skeptical group. Oh, right. I guess he does. Yeah. He does actually, yeah, use uh, skeptic as the uh, like a, a, a synonym for them later on, right? Or them as a synonym for skeptic, or yeah. both. Yeah, uh, so, I think that's what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, he says they're both uh, founded on this erroneous maxim that what a man can perform sometimes in some dispositions, he can perform always and in every disposition. Yeah. And I, oh, I also think that that's the, that's the misunderstanding. Oh, go on, Epicurus. Oh, also about the Stoics, they uh, were a very reason-driven and centric group. They uh, would also uh, rail against the notion of emotions as being a way of knowledge because they mm. thought that emotions were destructive, whereas someone should live like a sage and always in wisdom as opposed to uh, doing something that uh, very Buddhist they thought was very human. That makes that explains why the term stoic means what it does today. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. I I can't believe uh, I forgot that little tidbit. Yeah. Cool. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Philo doesn't seem he's he you know he admits the comparison between stoics and skeptics. Um. Uh. He you know through that uh, what does he say here? Uh, you may observe at the same time that though uh, the mind cannot, in Stoicism, support the highest flights of philosophy, yet when it sinks lower, it still retains somewhat of its former disposition, and the effects of the Stoic's reasoning will appear in his conduct in common life and throughout the whole tenor of his actions. Um, he, yeah, I mean, yeah, he says, you know, he's accustomed. Once you've accustomed yourself to skepticism, you won't forget the skepticism, and that's the important thing: is that you're using it as uh, a, a tool, um, you know, in in uh, in sort of a what does he say in a seasoned way? Or um, I, I thought he he was saying that skeptics don't apply it, unlike Stoics. Or maybe I was confused again. I actually read this while uh, people were talking in the background, so uh, my reading of this part of the uh, essay may not be extremely clear. 
uh, his basic point here is um, to basically say, yeah, you're right. Um, that there, there's a comparison here, and yeah, there's it's, there's a there's a up to a point where we can't live consistently with our principles all the time, but it doesn't quite go as far as Cleanthes is claiming that it does. Right? It, he's saying that you can still have these these as your guiding principles and 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 apply them as far as you can in certain areas, and you're not going to just, you know, completely. If you're a skeptic, you're not just going to completely lose all skepticism in certain situations, right? It's still going to be sort of in the background of your mind. It's your, it's your sort of your underlying guiding principle in all things. That's and if you apply it in different ways in different situations, and he goes into uh, how that that plays out in skepticism here in a bit. I actually like how uh, there's one YouTube user who's. Actually, very good. I'm just going to give a shout-out to his channel, Carnades.org, who uh, takes his name from the historical Carnades. And the way he phrases skepticism is, skepticism isn't a denial that there is knowledge, but rather it tries to seek a, a proper way to knowledge. He will recognize that he doesn't have a proper way yet, but he's seeking and he wants and he is trying to find it. So his skepticism is used as a tool to find knowledge that is immune to skepticism. So skepticism could be taken as being a, sort of an intermediate stage before finding knowledge. Sure, yeah. It's, it's sort of a softer way of looking at it than, yeah. than kind of what Cleanthes is talking about. Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh, anyone would, would accuse a skeptic of not believing in knowledge. That, that's the position of the epistemic uh, nihilist. Um, but a, a skeptic is just someone that the doubts. Uh, it's a weaker position in that sense than nihilism. Um, it's not the strong proclamation that knowledge does not exist. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I think I do think Cleanthes here is, is coming pretty close to um, accusing Philo of something like that. Yes, not necessarily. I agree. Of, uh, yeah, I agree, and I think that's where he's mischaracterizing his position. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Um, sure. So I mean, uh, I'm Philo. I mean, he says. I mean, he he's kind of arguing against against Cleanthes on his own terms and saying that you know, y yeah. In I I am I'm pushing skepticism, but I'm I'm not talking about a total skepticism, right? He says I'm um, to ever what to whatever length anyone might push or may push his speculative principles of skepticism, he must act. I own and live and converse like any other men or like other men, and for this conduct he is not obliged to give any other reason than the absolute necessity he lies under of doing. Of so doing, if he ever carries his speculations further than necessity constrains him, and philosophizes either on natural or moral subjects, he is allured by a certain pleasure and satisfaction which he finds in employing himself in that manner. Uh, so he's talking about, you know, it's this isn't about this isn't about everyday life. This isn't about how people live. This is about, um, you know, uh, the the pleasure you would gather from thinking that way. Um, I like I like that idea. It's really nice. Um, Kind of removes removes the, the the necessity for for an absolute sense yeah. or an absolute principle. And and when he does this, and I've and I reread reread this part a couple times because I was I was I was having trouble here in, in that it, it actually does seem to me that Philo is in face of opposition, kind of softening his stance a little bit. This does not seem near as as hard as what he was saying earlier about skepticism when he was discussing education. But maybe I'm just I'm misinterpreting something. Yeah, I you know he um. He kind of goes into the idea that it's, you know, um, well, maybe I'll just read it. I mean, he considers besides that everyone, even in common life, is constrained to have more or less of this philosophy, and that from our earliest infancy we may continue advances in forming more general princes of uh, principles of conduct and reasoning, that the larger experience we acquire, the stronger reason we are endued with, and we always render our principles the more general and comprehensive, that what we call philosophy is nothing more than a regular and methodical operation of the same kind. Um, 
So I think he's pointing out that I mean skepticism is actually a natural part of of our of our everyday life, right? Um, you know, from from a very young age, we're we're skeptical of the world. Um, and I do think also this is this is the point in um, where where um, Hume's sort of empiricism is really starting to show up when he starts talking about well, no, the, the, we're not as skeptical of certain things because we've been experiencing them and applying the inductive principle to them for a certain amount of time, and the more we do it, and he actually uses some examples of very common examples talking about, you know, we, we realize that fire is hot, you know, after a certain amount of times of dealing with it, you know, that's, but eventually you come to a point where you break free from any type of, uh, any ability to, to make these inductive claims, right? Eventually you're going to get off into the realm outside of our experience, which him, especially as an empiricist, and I think Philo here as an empiricist is going to say, now you're in trouble, you're not going to be able to get very far. Yeah, I mean, I have some disagreements with this, but I think that's because um, the disagreements with Hume's position, not not your interpretation of it. Uh, but that's probably because I'm not an empiricist. Um, yeah, so, I thought about you when I read this part. Actually, I was like, oh, I bet you're going to have problems with this. Yeah, I, I respect the position, though. It's, it's a it's a well thought out and well articulated one. Um, I think the problem is is that it's not skeptical enough. <laughs> it's, it is accepting with blind faith something different. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's basically um, explicitly saying that, um, you know, once you've, you've uh, dealt with these things enough time that, you know, hey, you can, be, you can still remain skeptical in principle, but you're, you know, it's not he's – not, he's not here. And, and I do think he does in other areas. He's not here um, sort of criticizing the – the inductive principle itself, right? Yeah, my, my position on, on uh, epistemology is, is fair, fairly close to uh, Bishop Barclays, um, who is another Scottish imp or British empiricist. I think he's Irish, actually. Um, he is Irish. But, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Barclay was a, a subjective idealist, but also an empiricist. And I think his version of empiricism is probably one that I would have a much easier time getting behind than Hume's. Um, but... Uh, uh, Again, I, I I don't I don't I don't hold by the positions that I hold by with certainty, and I, I, I they're subject to change. But uh, but at the moment, I'm I'm closer probably to Bishop Barclay's version of empiricism than Hume's. Uh, yeah, if, I actually haven't studied that, so. I oh, well, briefly, I can I can explain it to say that he um he. Actually, I'm not going to explain his position because I don't understand it as well as my own. Um, but I can explain mine pretty briefly. Uh, I would hold that that knowledge claims do not regard objects outside of our mind. They they regard the objects of our experiences, but the objects of our experiences need not be assumed to be things outside of our mind. Uh, rather, through experience, experiencing something, um, we we form the idea that it is an object, and it becomes a notional object in our mind. And so our beliefs regard those notional objects rather than objects outside of our mind. Um, in that sense, our experience is completely reliable because our experience is, I mean, they're, they're, it is not an experience of something. The, the, the philosophy just merely avoids asserting that. Uh, that's the fundamental difference. And, and in a sense, you take, you take one more skeptical step than Hume really is the main difference. Yeah. Yeah, I just dispense with the the. the uh, but again, I there are, there are, I have misgivings about that view, and I, it is it's certainly subject to change. There's a very good chance that in a few months I will have completely renounced uh, my version of subjective idealism, which, uh, but but that is currently where I'm at. <laughs> in favor of objectivism, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, oh, soon I'll be. Braun is a Randian. That would be hilarious. Oh after my! All, that... After all the bashing of Brandians, you do. 
Well, I wouldn't say I bash Randians. Uh, I think the philosophy is garbage. Uh, I haven't met many objectivists, so I can't comment on their character. <laughs> I, I can say that their philosophy is very weak, but anyway, that's off topic. <laughs> and for the record, the term is Randroid. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, we probably just uh, made uh, a number of people quite angry. <laughs> Uh, I don't think our viewership is large enough to matter, but it's entirely possible in uh, in the future you'll receive it from some Randians. Um, All right, so, well, bring it on. Okay, so, I mean, but Philo, he kind of steps back a little bit from um, the idea that skepticism is, is able to handle everything, right? I mean, he kind of goes into... Um, when we look beyond human affairs and properties of the surrounding bodies, um, we must be far removed from the smallest tendency to skepticism not to be apprehensive. Um, it, you know, he's, he's pointing out you know, uh, that we here have gotten quite beyond the reach of our faculties. Um, he's, he's worried that we're not able to, and I mean, I think that's where, you know, it's, it's very much, uh, he's, he's almost, uh, it's almost a, a very mystical um, uh, a mystical position, right, where he's he's proposing something that is incomprehensible, and thus, um, and I guess he's not proposing it, although, in a way, he is. Um, there's, but but do you guys want to see what I'm saying here? Um, there's, um, he's he's posing proposing something that is not available to our observable uh, senses and uh, or or our faculties properly, anyways. Um, and uh, and this is where um, Demaeus uh, kind of goes into divine simplicity, uh, and and um, Cleanthes responds by basically saying your position is tantamount to atheism. You're essentially saying we we can know nothing of God, but we can use these words to describe God, even though really we're we're trying to describe something indescribable. Um, God is the prime mover, but we don't we can't know anything about God. We know that God exists, but we can't we can't ever even comprehend. God's attributes, and so saying these things about God is meaningless. It it literally means nothing. Um, and Cleanthes basically says, "Well, then why say anything about God? Why why describe God in any way? Why not simply be an atheist?" If you I don't were to think just, actually, I don't think yeah. Demaeus is quite that extreme here, though. I I think that um he's I, I think I do think he's saying that we can't um we can't assume that these terms we're using have any meaning have any have any any Relate to God in any now, way, shape, or form. Analogical, analogical um, relationship. Does, uh, does I mean, he you, say the word divine simplicity? No, no, no. But he oh, says uh, that all oh, these things I, are the same. Oh, I, I, I see to, what he's saying. I oh, think what he's trying to. Okay, go ahead, Jeff. Curious. All right. Um, essentially, he's decrying uh, Damius's use of uh, mystery in order to explain God by saying, "Oh, if you're saying we can't know anything about him, then we might. Then uh, you're essentially saying that." We why then he's arguing why should we even bother exploring him? Essentially, what I think what uh, Damis is trying to argue is this notion of negative theology or apophatic theology, which essentially says we can't say anything of what God is, but we can definitely say what God isn't. For example, I could not say God is a killer or God is a murderer. I God, I could say God isn't a murderer or God isn't a killer. Well, not killer. Uh, I think no. God think, has killed. Okay. Okay. Here's the but problem. I, no. I, I, I couldn't say God, for example, was a murderer, or God was. Uh, I could. I could mention negative things, but I can't. I can uh, say, but I can't say what he is. For example, I could say um, 
um, or his exist. I could say God exists, but his existence is completely different than how we would imagine existence. Or God, uh, or God is good, but his goodness is far different than what we would call good. It, basically, it's arguing from analogy. There are words we use that are that are adequate in describing him, but aren't fully encapsulating about it. We argue from we might use it as analogous as opposed to descript as uh, descriptive. For example, if I were to say to uh, Ozzy, he's as smart as a fox. If I was to actually describe his intelligence as e equating that of a fox's intelligence, that would be a huge insult. I'd, I'd be saying Ozzy's no smarter than an animal. I like that. When I'm saying that... But he's no smarter than an animal. He's a human. <laughs> uh, he's no smarter than a lower life form of it. Of uh, intelligence, lower life form. Okay. <laughs> yes, I know that's I know that's specious, but whatever. Well, uh, no, I mean, I just, I just wonder uh, what, what criteria you're using. I might not disagree with the, it if you have a clear okay, criteria. Okay, I'm but, using this colloquially. So, but if I were to say it as an analogy, um, the way that this fox is smart yeah. is is adequate in describing uh, the way in which Ozzy is smart. So when yeah. I say God is good, I'm Yes, I'm using that analogously. I'm saying uh, the way God is is analogous to how I would describe any human being. At, or and this is exactly the point that uh, this is exactly the point that Cleanthes is just about to make. Actually, a very very similar point that you just made. Well, I I, I think there's there's a couple of problems with that. One is that negative theology is I, I don't think it's any different from positive theology to extent uh, to to some extent. Uh, when you say something is not something else. If you know everything that something is not, you know precisely what it is. To say something, for example, I could I could I could describe God as being uh, not not omniscient. Um, that's negative, but but you are that's still that's a double uh, negative. But any 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 term can be can be. I could come up with a term that simply means not not omniscient, um, or I could come up with a term that means not omniscient. We'll, we'll say nominish. Yeah, but the problem. And then say he's not nomination. Uh, I mean, there, there's nothing wrong with doing that. That's perfectly linguistically viable, but it's identical to saying something positive about it. But uh, the, the the difference is is that is the, the point here is that God does possess certain attributes, right? It's just that we we don't like when you like let's say God is wise or God is not wise, right? Now, if you say God is not wise, you're you're making the claim that God is wise. But the problem is. Is if God is so far beyond everything, then there could be another kind of alternative to this. You see okay, what I'm saying? Okay, but the problem with that is that you're now you're now going into the area of the eternal created verities. You're saying, well, okay, well God can be can 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 violate the principle of the excluded middle. He can he can be neither uh, not wise or wise. He can be something completely different. Uh, what one could argue, rather, is that the concept of wisdom cannot be applied to God, but but any mind, I think, could be described as wise or not wise. So so here here comes the problem, and and what essentially they say later on in the dialogue, which is to say, if you exclude these terms from being used on God, literally speaking, then you're not saying anything at all about God. For example, if we can't describe God as as loving. Uh, because God doesn't experience love, if we can't describe God as being hateful, because God doesn't experience hate, if we can't describe him as being intelligent or unintelligent, if we can't use any of these terms, we there's no reason to call him a mind, because he doesn't think uh, in, in any way that we, we would rightfully call thinking. We could use positives analogously, uh, as I previously uh, pointed out, and we could, and again, but, when used, and to deny some... And remember, when we just eliminate things to two categories, either something is something or something is not something, we're saying that that's all there could be. Uh, when, in fact, our inductive knowledge might 
our inductive knowledge to what is is limited in terms of human reasoning, and that is something that is, um, and that is something that is not out of what uh, Demia would possibly think or know. About okay, this. but would you would you deny the principle of the excluded middle then? Uh, would I deny the principle of the excluded middle? Not necessarily. Uh, for example, when some when I say uh, when I would say uh, God, let's all right to use the I'm just going to parallel this with the law of identity when. I could say something is wise, or I could say something isn't wise. I can't say both. At the same time, those aren't the only two that's, options. That's, sorry, sorry hold on, hold on. That's not the principle of the excluded middle. That's, that's the principle the law of identity. Yeah, I know, that's but he's, he's saying that the principle of excluded middle is not necessarily what we're talking about here. We're not talking yeah. well, about the logical uh, issue and here. So no, no, when I, but no, no. When I, first of all, when I say I'm ignoring both, when I say I'm not going to use describe them as not wise and not describe them as wise, I'm essentially saying that's a category error. It doesn't well, belong. It doesn't okay, belong there. It's like but, me saying is a rock what why No, I agree. Not wise. So, so I agree with you. The problem is when you say that though, you exclude God from being a mind. That's that's the issue you get to is if you if you exclude any language from being used to describe God, you say God is not something that is describable, uh, and as such, there is no argument to be had. I won't. I won't. I can't discuss something that is indescribable uh, any more than I can discuss a concept that's indefined. You, you, I, I, you're perfectly right. God might, you, it might be impossible to describe God as wise or not wise. Or really, it would be not wise in that case, because God is not a mind. Um, but go on, sorry. In terms, well, I wouldn't describe. Well, again, I wouldn't say God is a mind. I'm saying the notion of a mind is analogous to God. Again, we, we get in, Again, we kind of collapse back into, the, into the main head, into the main heading here. But, uh, but. Uh, uh, would you like to discuss this further, or uh, would you want to retreat back? Well, to we're about to get into these exact. Well, but I think we're 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 perfectly. <laughs> I think we're perfectly in line with the dialogue here. All right. so, I, I, a little bit. Um, I mean, there's um, there's a little bit I wanted to get into here, where um, you know, the uh, he gets into a little bit into the idea of the priestcraft, right, at the at the end of this dialogue or at the end of this this section, um, and and Philo seems to be saying that uh, you know, during ignorant ages, uh. You know that the priests um, perceived that that uh, skepticism, skepticism and, and deism and atheism were were bad things, but it, it seems now that they're they're more likely and apt to embrace uh, philosophical uh, things these days, and it, it seems like it's very much of uh, a, a thing of expedience, right? And he, he even says, you know, thus skeptics in one age and dogmatists in another, um, whichever system best suits the purposes of these reverend gentlemen. Um, uh, so I don't think he says that atheism and deism are okay. I think he says skepticism is okay. I may have misheard you, though. Uh, maybe, I, yeah, maybe I, I, I think just might the, have skipped I think that. the point is skepticism or do, skepticism or rationality or... He says atheist. He, he doesn't say atheism, by the way. Really? Oh. Okay. Yeah, he says, you know, he says huh. the, priest, the priest perceived that atheism, deism, and heresy of any kind could only proceed from the presumptuous question of received opinions, um, from the belief that human reason was equal to everything. Um, and so he, you know, he's he. But then afterwards, he says, you know, after a while, they they decided that that was, you know, they could change their whole system of philosophy and talk the language of the Stoics and the Platonists. Um, Okay, yeah, but so but it's... I'm saying though that that I don't think. Uh, sorry, I may have misheard you when you you said something. But I thought you said that they the priests uh, thought that that, that uh, atheism was okay. 
Um, um, no, uh, only only in retrospect, right? I mean, only in the in the ideas that that got the people to that atheism was what I was what I was what I was getting at. Yeah, sorry, I I, I may again I may have misheard you. It was just I, sure. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to to speed through it because I because no, we I are kind of getting into the idea of you know uh, what can be seen, you know what is available to us. Um, and you know, um, Cleanthes doesn't like the idea of of brutish skepticism, but thinks that um. The, the, that skepticism is fatal to knowledge, not to religion. Um, he points out that um, that, it, that it seems to undermine uh, the you know the great truths. What does it say? Um, uh, not to religion. Since we find that those who make the greatest profession of uh, religion often give their assent not only to the great truths of uh, theism and natural theology, but even to the most absurd tenets which traditional superstition has recommended to them. Um, and he's talking about about vulgar uh, skepticism and and uh, vulgar religion, right? Um, and he, I think he's trying to point out that you know um, it's it's about being re refined in our in our uh, in our approach to the to the topics, right? Um, so I think I think in the end he sort of um, acquiesces a little bit to Philo and gives in to the idea that okay, like you know I I won't take in your radical skepticism. We'll talk about a more refined view of the topics. And I think that's sort of where he kind of goes with it. And uh, and from there, I mean, I think they can finally get into, um, you know, the idea that, that Cleanthes and Demia seem to really be, or I mean, I guess they're all kind of, the ones that they're discussing is, um, you know, the evidence for uh, for the deity itself. Um, you know, what are we using to determine the, uh, the actual um, existence or non-existence of this thing? Well, they don't actually talk about the existence or non-existence of uh, God. Right. Uh, yeah. I they, suppose I'm, I'm more. T they, they, they actually um, make a very, very specific uh, assertion, right? That that they're not arguing over the being of the thing. Oh, the nature of the yeah. being. But over the nature yeah. of the thing, yeah. F interestingly the, enough, uh, Philo uh, accepts the existence of God, if for no other reason than the cosmological argument, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, he. They say that it's self-evident, and therefore we. There's no point in even arguing about it. Um. So then, then they really do get get more. They they move away from skepticism and into the discussion of natural theology, um, which is to where myself and uh, Epicurus were, uh, were 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 discussing. Um, so, do you want to get back to that discussion, or do you want to keep going through the text, John? What, what do you? Yeah, think? no, I think I think that's sort of along the along the right lines, and I thought I'd be I'd be um, curious to get you guys back into that into that discussion. Actually, I think, so, I, I, think yeah, I think we can I think we can kind of pull pull right back into it after we kind of get to a certain point there. All right. So, so just let me know when you you think it's appropriate. To, Absolutely, to I'll stop you guys. <laughs> oh, I meant start us. Okay, uh, start you guys. I'll start you guys. Go, go right in. Okay, uh, so uh, Epicurus, I think the problem here is that we essentially have two options. We can either say that the analogy is analogous up to a certain extent, and then say to what extent that analogy holds, mm -hmm. uh, and then once we pin that down, we can we can begin to discuss it in those terms, or we can say, well, the analogy holds in no way whatsoever. Rather, it is a, a word we apply to it because that is the... the that's just the closest... We, we, it doesn't actually matter what concept we, we assign to God. We could call God anything, and it would be true. Uh, or, or it wouldn't necessarily be true, but it would be analogous in a way. So my question is, to what extent is the analogy of a mind appropriate? Um, that's, that's the question. I mean, we can, we can either go full-on mysterious, and at which point the question just becomes irrelevant, to me personally, at least. I... I I can't really discuss that, or we can agree that the analogy has some grounding in, in what God is like, and so we can discuss to what extent that analogy holds. You, know, you have the floor. <laughs> uh, 
I think the analogy holds to the certain extent in which God has, um, no, just to give everyone a bit of a refresher on what the notion of divine simplicity is. It's the me metaphysical notion that God has no parts, meta either metaphysically or physically. For example, um, one, for example, uh, the notion of a uh, property was or a part essentially is that in which God is that. So if God could have part X, which is like this, part Y, which is like this, and these two parts would not need to oversect uh, the uh, completely, which would, uh, which kind of detracts from the notion. So God would have to stay in as a full one-part substance. There would, there could not be a way to uh, get parts out of. It. Now within God is an ultimate. Now within God is uh, is an ultimate notion of the forms, or uh, is a notion of all the forms like uh, circularity, triangularity, uh, numbers. Uh, Basically, any abstract rational notion it exists either in it exists either in the makeup of the thing. For example, my cell phone has the forms of being a square. It has many parts. It's a it's a square. It, rectangle. I mean, it, it, rectangle. Yeah. yeah. It's a rectangle. It has plastic. Uh, there are some parts that are smaller squares. There are, there's various different shapes and and formations, and there's various different parts. On the other hand, for God. He exists as one single substance in which uh, the very in which the various form in which the various forms uh, have their have their existence. Uh, so think of like the Platonic forms with encapsulated within the mind, uh, within uh, within uh, the uh, within uh, the essence of God. So in so in terms of this, God has no part. So God has no parts in the same way one might think of. A completely immaterial mind having the concept of ideas. Now, if you were to, now if one was to take out the brain, you can find, you can dissect uh, triangles, rectangles. You can, you can get that just from the physical analysis. Um, and on the other hand, there, I'm not sure if everyone else is not a substance dualist like me, but I'm, I don't consider myself as such. Uh, there's no one single metaphysical part that we could say uh, contains all that we can say contains all this, but the fact that we do have these notions and ideas within us and and God has it is analogous to saying that God is a mind. And but here's the but here's the thing, uh that's where the analogy breaks down because whatever else we can get from that would uh would kind of conflict with that earlier notion. So whatever God is generally we have to analogize it analogize it as a mind. And because uh, within him are the no are all these uh are all notions of knowledge. Now these, so um, essentially that's why that's what uh, the concept of analogy is meant to uh, safeguard, or at least uh, try to explain. Okay, so the the, the issue here, I, I I I think part of the 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 idea at least. Well, here let me let me articulate part of the idea. I think. Um, all right. Part of part of the I think uh, correct me if I'm, I'm misrepresenting your view of divine simplicity is that when we say something like God is knowledgeable or God is good, we're describing the same thing with different words. So, for example, we're describing God's greatness, like from the ontological argument, presumably. Like when we say God is good, well, God is good is 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 uh, a way of, of of looking at God's nature. But is not a distinct feature of God. It is it is the same as God's omniscience because they both are a way of us experiencing God's greatness. Is that correct? 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, something that's relational. It's something that comes out of a uh, out of a position of relation as opposed to being intrinsic of the being itself. Of uh, not the being, but intrinsic of uh, God Himself. Okay, so to be to be to be very clear here, um, when you say it's not intrinsic, I, I think I know what you mean, but I want to make very clear to the uh, listeners. Right. So I think what Epicurus is saying here is not that gr the greatness isn't intrinsic to God. That greatness is objective and intrinsic to God. But when we when we consider God and we consider God's traits, those traits are not intrinsic. They are they are what are how we articulate aspects of God's greatness. Um, and this actually is much clearer to me at least now after reading Anselm's Praslogion. And if you're struggling to understand this, as I was, uh, I would strongly recommend reading that. That's a great way, I think, of getting at kind of some bits of divine simplicity. Now, not all of it, but bits of it. Um, so here's the problem, though. When we use a word like knowledgeable in an analogous sense, so one could say that my computer is knowledgeable. Um, there is a, an extent to that, to, to, there's an extent to which that analogy holds. My computer has information. Um, and in the same way that a mind holds information, I can ask my computer questions in a sense, and my computer can communicate back to me. So in a number of ways, that analogy holds. It doesn't hold in every way. Uh, I certainly wouldn't hold that my, my computer's conscious. I definitely don't hold by strong AI. Um, so here's my problem, though. If we're going to use it as an analogy, we must pin down either to what extent the analogy holds or say that it holds to no extent at all. So to what extent, in what sense is God knowledgeable? I know it's an analogy. I get right. that. And okay, I agree okay. with but, but, but to precisely what extent? What does the analogy communicate about the thing we're trying to communicate about? What does, when we say knowledgeable, what do we actually mean? Are we, are we merely describing God's greatness in another way? Oh, or, has, I think it would be the notion that within him is the knowledge of all universals or all universality. For example, uh, if I were to ask you, so far, if I were to ask you, uh, what is uh, a triangle? And you were thinking of a triangle in your head. It wouldn't be the notion of triangularity or the universal notion. It would just yeah. be uh, an isosceles, an equilateral, maybe a triangle that was red, maybe one that just had lines, uh, may, uh, maybe uh, one with weird angles, maybe it's just a straight-up right angle. But this is not triangularity, as we can conceive of it. Within God, is more, within God there is more or less of this universal or perfect knowledge that uh, okay. goes about. Oh, can, let, let's back up for a second, yeah. though. So I actually... Him is, so uh, that. I, I didn't ask about God's omniscience. I'm asking about knowledge. To say God has knowledge, when we when we say a mind so has knowledge, have knowledge of universals. Well, okay, no, 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 no. But you use the word knowledge to explain what you mean by knowledge. That that is a and we're being circular here. All right, all right. He possesses the essence. All right, he possesses uh, the essence of what is to be a thing. Okay, so here's the question though possess in the sense that a mind possesses a memory, or possess in the sense that a computer possesses being, I mean, from the Platonist point of view, being an expression of that form. Is he the ultimate expression of that form, or does God have a mind within which he understands that form perfectly, and in, in, in that mind it, it, it expresses it? Because that's what we mean when we say knowledge. Is, well, is that... God, well, one would say God is that mind. Okay, okay, but if God's a mind then... Um, we we will then we'll, we can then go that into you know it might using? actually be useful to to back it up a step and and, uh, and instead of using knowledge use the word consciousness. Well, I, I'm getting there. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, consciousness I, implies a lot of other things as opposed to 
just uh, the holding of reason and idea, for example. It would also hold notions of phenomenon, imagination, uh, Yeah, but I think for the purpose of this discussion, I don't see why it would be a, a, a worse example than knowledge. Actually, I agree with Elijah. It's not a worse example. It's actually where I'm going with this. Um, I actually don't agree with Epicurus that it implies all those things necessarily. Um, but when we when we think about consciousness, then yes, it, it does, to, to, to a human mind, um, encourage us to, to consider those things. But uh, what, what, what I'm trying to get at here is in what way God is analogous to a mind. So... So a mind. Let's let's use let's let's discuss. I mean, again, we might be going a bit too far afield here uh, for your taste, John. Please stop us if we go too far away. But I'm enjoying the Socratic dialogue. This is one of the more invigorating ones I've had in a while. So well, he, he's equivocal in the notion that remember he holds information. Now one might say that my inform no one like if now if you want to get that down to the level of a computer, uh, it would. The computer doesn't hold the quality of information God does in terms of him holding the universal essence of things. Uh, your computer might hold uh, bare bone concepts of ones and zeros, but that's not necessary. But that's not necessarily universal. That's uh, uh, these are just particular notions of ones and zeros organized and bunched up. God, God possesses this knowledge in a way that's far more qualitative. No, no, no. Okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. This is the problem, though. This is where we get into the question of how far the analogy actually holds. By in what sense does God possess it? Now, now let's be clear. If God is a mind, um, as as you and I have minds, um, we we react to stimuli, things. Uh, we we experience things, and well, and we we hold on. Just, all right. Let me let I me. Just want to I just wanted to correct you on something. Uh, not in the way me and you have minds. See, I would say that. He's, it's not an. It's analogous to how we have minds, but God is. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm. I'm not saying that God's mind is as our minds are. I'm. Yeah. I'm. 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 I'm discussing our minds so that we can. We can get to his. Ah, I see. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying this is what's true of God's mind. So, so is God's mind like our minds in the sense that when we are presented with certain stimuli, we have certain experiential responses to them? The, no, I wouldn't say that. Okay. That, so that's that's good. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so so in that sense, uh, the, the problem is that seems to be the defining characteristic of a mind, though, doesn't it? I mean, when when we when we experience something as a result of of well, we we have an experience by reacting to certain stimuli in a particular way. We have a certain set of inputs and we get a certain set of outputs. But I would agree with you that the divine simplicity version of God would have no inputs or or necessarily even outputs in the way that we think of them. So how does the, the concept of mind hold? Does it hold in another way? It, I would, against hmm, how would uh, the notion of him holding the information of universals uh, not uh, qualify? Because I think that was the explanation I gave. Okay, so so let's let's imagine what well, what do we mean by universals or not universals? Sorry, I know I know what we mean by universals, but what do we mean by holding something? Do we mean by that that it is in a form that some individual could look at it and from that form derive some sort of knowledge of that thing? So it is it is symbolized in a way. Um, it doesn't have to be symbolized in any particular way. It can be symbolized in any way, right. but it is symbolized in such a way that that one looking at it could from those symbols derive something about what those symbols represent. Would you agree uh, that that's... Oh, you want to know how God... Alright, so to paraphrase what you're asking, or perhaps try to get back uh, correctly, you're asking me essentially how does God possess such information? No, 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 I'm asking or about God or how does as it a exist mind. Within... 
how does he exist? How does the information exist? Or? I'm asking about, about about how God is in any way analogous to a mind. That's what I'm trying to get at here. This is the this is the question I'm trying to get at. Um, so so the oh, question oh, is oh, I'm I asking see. is in what way is God does God have anything analogous to a mind? We've agreed that God oh, does not experience I, I things. I see. I see. All right. Uh, let's just say this. Uh, think of a concept of design in your head right now. Uh, sure. Any anything really. Uh, maybe actually let's go to Anselm's idea of a painting. Now the painting can be help. Now the painting exists in such a way that it is in your head, but it doesn't. That's its essential essence or way of being exists within your head, but it doesn't exist outside of it. Now you can make it so that your reality uh, reflects that said existence, and in such a way, God. In such a way, um, these uh, for in such a way, these forms have only their existence because of God's existence. So. They okay. have uh, that kind of contingent existence. No, I get that. I get sense. that. And that's when it comes out. And that's when it comes out in the, in the rest of the uh, pool of reality. I'm sorry, but, so, but we're getting away so, from the question again. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the question is about how how the word mind can be used to describe God. In what way does the analogy hold? So I agree with you about the universals. I understand that that is the picture. Oh, I, the I, I get what you're saying. So how does the analogy of the mind hold? To what extent does it hold? We've agreed that it's an analogy, and so so I, I I would agree with you that certainly God God's mind is not the same as ours. But how does the analogy tell us anything at all? That's the question I'm looking for. Oh well, it's well. I think I think that's exactly Philo's point, right? Um, is, is that is that I mean, he he goes to say, I mean, all perfection is entirely relative, and we never ought to imagine that we comprehend the attributes of his divine being, or suppose that his perfections have any analogy or likeness to the perfections of human creatures. Wisdom, thought, or design, and knowledge, these we describe to him because these words are honorable among men, and we have no other language or no other conceptions by which we can express our adoration of him. But let us beware lest we think our ideas anywise correspond to his perfections or his attributes have any resemblance or these qualities of men. Um, he is infinitely superior to our limited view and comprehension and is more an object of worship in the temple than of disputation in the schools. So, I mean, he's, he's, he's trying to point that, that, I mean, even when we're talking about the word knowledge or, or mind, um, there's, there's, there's a problem with that analogy. And I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily agree, disagree with you guys, um, mm -hmm. but that it's, it, by, by putting it away from our experience, you know, he says, you know, we have no experience of um, we have no experience of a, of a supreme being or or the you know the 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 experience of divine attributes and aspirations I think he says um, so there's there's no um, we don't really have a, an analogy um, is what I, is what I would say um, and so I mean Eddie would, would what would you say about that I mean it's, it's sort of it seems to, to fly against your your point of view there yeah. that that we can make draw the analogy right we can well, I think this actually kind of strikes me as a, a private language argument where we each speak our own private language and when we ever try to communicate with each other, it kind of gets mixed up. I know that's neither here nor there, but I just found that a little bit interesting. Um, I think uh, just to go back to the whole notion of a mind in terms of analogizing it, it helps us in our understanding. And well, is, okay, okay, but here's I the think problem. That's the, all right, yeah. That's the thing, though. This is the point that I'm making and that Philo's making here, is that if the analogy holds in no way whatsoever, then it is merely an honorific. We could use literally any word to describe God and it would hold equally as an analogy. So if it does hold as an analogy, and not merely just as an honorable term we use to describe God because we revere God, how, how does the analogy hold? To what extent does it hold? That's, that's the question. Uh, it holds... Oh, I see. It holds to the extent that, uh, that something could exist before... 
it holds to the fact that something could exist within the notion of a of the being and before its own essence takes its own existence. For example, um, if I were to, to I'm just going for example, if I was thinking of a painting, that painting would exist in my mind because I could conceive of its definitions, uh, every little detail of it. Well, not accurately, but to a good extent, I could actually bring it up. I could actually bring it about through a series set of causes, uh, through a series of uh, causation. Whereas God Himself can, whereas uh, God Himself can do the same. He holds these ideas in His mind, in His. He holds the essence, the uh, essence of these things, within Himself, and okay. because and because of that, He could, and because of that, He could uh, bring about their. Um, their own independent existence. I'm sorry, but, Where, but, but that's really, really not the question I'm asking, though. Um, I, I, I understand what you mean by the platonic forms. I, I right. get that. The question I'm asking is why use these terms to describe God at all if, I mean, if, if they, they are good analogies, if they hold as analogies, to what extent do they hold? In what way is it appropriate to call God a mind, or to, to say that God has a mind? If they don't hold at all, as is suggested here, then there is no point in describing God at all in any way. The, the analogy doesn't hold at all. So either it holds to some extent, and we can describe God to some extent, or we cannot describe God at all in any way. That's that's the problem here. So so if no, the no, analogies do, but hold, I if, if, if I could jump in at all, I mean, sure, uh, for I've just, just I do think that 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 last. Um, Point Epicurus is is sort of a way of answering the question of how far does the analogy go, right? If all he's saying is God in his being has a way of retaining information and, and bringing it about, you know, with his mind the way human does, and I, and I realize I'm using the word mind, I'm not I'm not begging the question here, oh, no. but I, I do think I think I don't think it's it may not be satisfactory to you, Gerard, but I, I think that that is a way of saying this is this hey here's an example of how the analogy might work. No, 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 no. But it's not at all. What you're you're doing is you're you're describing you're describing God's being, but but it is completely unrelated to the analogy of saying that God has a mind, that God is a person. To say that God is a person, or has a person, or to say that God has power, it's not answering the question because it, it is it is rather it is describing a kind of unrelated thing about God. It's describing what God does, but not how our descriptions of God have anything to do with God. That's the question I'm asking, is what is the relationship between our descriptions of God and God? Not what is the relationship between God and the rest of the world. I that That's a completely different okay, question. No. All I'm asking for is what is the relationship between our the words we use to describe God and God? Do they hold any meaning, uh, or could we replace the word knowledgeable with bookly, or any word, any word that means anything to us or nothing to us? If... Yeah. Well, I you know I would say that um, you know if if I had to look at it just from from this document itself, um, I mean there's there's a few arguments going on here, but I mean you're talking about in one hand you're talking about the the yeah. idea of how we can how we can even describe a being right that like that right and um and I think I think in this this argument I mean they're not worried about they're not worried about describing it. In terms of of knowing perhaps exactly what it is, um, in in this, in, you know, it seems to me like as they go into these arguments, they're arguing from uh, a posteriori, right? I mean, they're they're arguing from the effects that the mind should have caught or can be seen to have caused, um, and so there's there's the idea that um, you know we're not necessarily saying. Um, it is analogous, but that the effects are analogous, and that we can we can observe 
the cause itself or the holder of that or the, you know or the the um, the beginning of that cause you know the agent involved in that cause but we can we can infer it from the similarity of the effects in in the cause itself uh, and I think in that way you maybe could make the the argument that mind could be analogous if you are if you are always saying that design must come from a mind right I mean if you're if the argument holds that way you could make that connection to a mind uh, easy enough without having to exactly know what what the mind analogy exactly is, right? Uh, I'll accept that. I accept that you could say that the analogy only holds insofar as that that one thing has a similar cause uh, has a similar effect as the other thing. But I'm actually not asking about the effect. You're, these words really describe the effect. They're not actually a descriptor of the cause, though. If we do agree to this, if we do agree to that the, the analogy really only holds insofar as that, that a mind creates design and God created the universe and therefore God has a mind, if that's really the only extent that, that we're, we're using it, that tells me nothing about God. That tells me about things that God does, but not about God. I mean, I think that there are uh, an infinite many ways to get to get one effect out of another. I mean, there, there, there are an infinite many ways that we could go about getting uh, an effect, essentially. There, there, there are, are many, many ways in which one thing can be caused. Um, I, and I agree. Well, well, I, no, I agree with you there. Um, well, I would, well, I would say that God, when I say God is simple, made of one part, uncomposited in a, a metaphysical or in a physical sense, that is, I'm not using an analogy there. That actually entails that that is how... God, that is how God is now because he is now because he is simple to us humans who are complex and think about things in a very complex way and understand and understand complexity as as and understand things only in their complexity for something that is simple strikes us as being far more complex than than strikes us as being very complex so we have to rely on this way because something so simple and yet sent in such a relation seems so complex to us and okay. our understanding. And I actually, I accept that part of divine simplicity, or at least I'm not disputing it at the moment. I, I might have some other problems with it, but I, I can't think of any at the moment. The part I'm disputing, though, is the value of using these terms at all. Either there is an analogy to be had there, in which case one may explain what the relationship is, what, what how the relationship between God and the universe is analogous to that of humans and cars, or there is no analogy at all to be made. If there's really no analogy, then we don't. Then the terms we use to describe God don't matter. We can well, describe God in any way. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, no, you, here's the thing: you're dividing between the being and the action. If you're, if I'm saying that these analogies are a good way of uh, describing God's action or the way in which He acts, then you would then okay, would play, if, that doesn't tell me about the being. Now, when I just come in with simplicity and say that's describing the being, you say, oh, okay, but that doesn't tell me. Okay, yeah, but that doesn't tell me. Uh, Anything necessarily about um, how the uh, being about the analogy? So I think so no, I no, think, no, no, no. So sorry, I think the sorry. action explains the analogy, but well, I think simplicity explains the being itself. Okay, please, please let me let me let me backtrack here. I may have All made right. myself unclear. Um, so simplicity describes describes what kind of property the being has. It specifically says that it has one property. Uh, it has it has just the property of godliness or, or, or some some property, the property of greatness. That is the only property God has. Um, but what it does tell me is about that property and about that being. It, it tells me, it, it gives me a, 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 a description of, of, of 
of the thing which can be used to understand the rest of the being, sure. but I still don't have the full picture there. I mean, you've given me the frame, but not the picture. And and the frame, I, I I'm 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 fine with, but but the problem is filling in that picture. Yeah, just to make it a little uh, a little simpler, Epicurus. Um, what he's basically saying is you you've given a when you say God has a mind, you're you're basically you're not ontologically adding on to God, right? But you're making another yeah. claim about him that has to be you have to you still have to justify using the word God has a mind or God has goodness or God has whatever it might be, is, even if is. you have divine simplicity as like the core of his being. Yes, and, and actually, really to say, I, I'm not even saying you're saying God has a mind, but that the analogy has value. And I'm not, I'm not claiming that, that using these words, I, I understand what you mean by divine simplicity, or part of it at least, that, that these are all different ways of describing the same thing about God. I, I understand that. But my question is, how are these descriptions at all valuable? I mean, saying God is utmost simple tells me very little about God, unfortunately. Uh well, I think they're useful for us in anything. Now, if one was to now, if one to say, uh, what's the now, if one wants to equivocate between analogies, saying, well, one analogy is just as good as another, uh, I don't really see how that helps us in understanding God. If I was to say God is is uh, stupid or foolish, it doesn't necessarily it doesn't come near as close to saying God is wise. They're they're both we'd both be using them in an analogous nature, but at the same time, one analogy fits uh, much better than the other. Okay, so I okay, think in so. Terms of, in terms so, of that, there, there is all a right. Fair enough. If one analogy fits better than the other, though, there has to be an extent to which that analogy fits. That's my point. I, I would I would concede that, that, that surely something can be used to describe God. If one analogy fits better than the other, and I think that's your position, um, we have to know to what extent, or we don't have to know to particularly what extent, but we have to say that it does fit to some extent. Otherwise, they're equally bad. <laughs> they're equally nondescriptive. Sure. I mean, um, oh, no. Philo, yeah. I mean, Philo says. I mean, uh, just a few uh, paragraphs later. I mean, the exact similarity of the cases gives us gives us the perfect assurance of a similar event, and the strong evidence is never desired nor sought after. But wherever you depart in the least from the similarity of the cases, you diminish proportionately the evidence, and you may at last bring it to a very weak analogy which is confessedly liable to error and uncertainty. So I mean he, he's he's stating that I mean the more differences that we point out and, and you know the less similarities we find um, the weaker the analogy is and I, and I, I agree that that's um, it, it makes it harder to make that um, that leap right that jump of, of logic to from from the one from the analogy to the actual thing that we're describing right um, and I, you know, I, you know, he even says, you know, it's um, it's it's the the dissimilitude is so striking, you know, that it's it's hard to pretend, you know, that you're you're doing any more than guessing or or you know um or just you know it's just straight conjecture that you're that you're asserting that this is like this, right? I wouldn't say I wouldn't really say this is any more conjecture than uh, positing a scientific than positing a scientific theory is when. Uh, well, uh, scientific theories uh, tend to be wrong, and I'm not degrading science here. But for example, uh, to quote Isaac Asimov, there's there was a point where people thought the world was flat, and there was a time when uh, people thought the Earth was round, but went around, but uh, the sun went around it. Now both of these groups were wrong, but one is less wrong than the other, and you you get to better you get to better stages of understanding. Now you can make now in terms of uh, these analogies, in terms of these analogies, one could just pause it the same way. Uh, well, you well you could equally say say the analogy God is stupid fits as well. The notion that God the analogy that God is smart 
they're, they wouldn't be equal. One is going to do a better job of the other, and for each part to do a better job of, than the other, in terms of outholds, you have to uh, go into God's relationship with people, just like how uh, people have to explore their relationships with uh, with how they interact uh, with their senses in terms of how they might interact with uh, the nature of the Earth, the nature of the solar system, with the nature of chemistry, yeah. physics, all that. Can I oh, – go ahead, Javon, say this. And I, and oh, I, Okay. Well, well, I mean, I, I, the, I agree with you that, that presumably the one analogy does fit better than the other. But the question is, if one fits better than the other, there must be some way in which one fits at all. It has to fit at least in some way. It has to tell us something about God. Otherwise, all analogies are equally useless. There is nothing to... Uh, sorry, okay, i got to move. Um, uh, so, um, there... Uh, 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 yeah, pick up on that when you when you get back there. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Hold on. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I, I thought someone needed to come in here and use the space, but apparently, never mind. Um, but but uh, uh, the, the, I, I agree with you that presumably one analogy is better than the other. But if it is better than the other, then they must tell us something about God. Uh, so here's the here's where I think your analogy about scientific theories is very interesting, um, because. The, there, there's this there's this quality of scientific theories this this thing that, that is valuable about them and that is um, that is how precise they are and, and and so in a sense saying the world is flat is true to a certain uh, according to certain observations um, and in the same way I'm, I'm not saying that, that the analogy here has to be uh, precise I'm not saying your description of God has to be precise but that if it is to be an analogy at all it has to describe God in some way. That's all I'm asking for. And, and and what I'm asking for is then, if it does describe it in some way, what is that way in which it describes it? And I'm specifically asking about the mind part here because I think that that's the biggest challenge. I see. Um, right. Just... If you just, want to pile in, Elijah. I want to make a point here, uh, and, and it kind of goes with the science thing. Um, if you... Um, the thing about about science, when we when we talk about it, whatever we're saying about, about the natural world, we're, we're using it because of something we've observed, right? We're, if we make analogies between one thing or another, we're, we're using it. It's all based on our observation in some way, right? But it's, I do think it's kind of important to throw in here that, that the terms we use to, that apply to God, things like knowledge, things like mind, you know, things like grace, things like goodness, mm -hmm. these are not things that anyone – I mean, even if we had a concept of God you know, we, that we gathered from like ontological argument or something like that, mm -hmm. The only reason we use these terms like knowledge and good and, and mind and, and any of these other factors we apply to God are because they are supposedly part products of special revelation, right? See what I mean? There's nothing there's nothing inherent about the concept of God that implies any of these terms. You know what I mean? That need to be there. That and I think I think I mean it's 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 sort of a genetic issue, I think. You know what I mean? It's an issue of, of where the problem got started, but this is why this problem exists. Is because you're having to apply these terms that do not come from observation of any kind. There's no way that we've experienced God having any of these, even by analogy, right? Or even in such a way that we're trying to describe. All we have is the terms that we've been sort of told apply to God, right? Yeah, and, and Elijah, I, I was just gonna, I was gonna shy away from that, and and just, uh, I, I I agree with the point you're making there. Uh, I was shying away from that though because I think that's a, a a a bigger argument to be had, and I'm I'm more curious to have the more particular one, but I think that's a good point. That it is. This is a this is a, this is a heavy topic to go into in general, and but uh, but uh, let's see how I could uh, explain uh, this. Uh, 
Elijah, would you mind if I bypass the point you brought up and try to just address uh, Gibran's point? And maybe, and maybe... <laughs> I, I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. Go right ahead, sir. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Uh, it's tough uh, having well, it's tough, uh, having two objections up front. Uh, all right. The relationship God has... All right, first of all, we start off with analogy in terms of relationship God has with us. There are analogies that fit that relationship a lot better than other analogies, as I just wanted to express in terms of in terms of scientific expression, when we go into the relationship of us and the Earth, the so on and so forth, we might find some aspects which are flat-like, but at the same time, that there are other analogies that better capture it. For example, the for example, roundness better captures it in a lot of respects than uh, than the flatness does. The fact that it rotates around the sun captures it much better than that. So there is so there is in some sense a hierarchy being built, and that's all I was getting there to show that they aren't all. Well, flatly put on equal ground. In terms of how God is related to is related to a mind, and He is related insofar as how He insofar as how our essences or the ways of our being exist within Him primarily, but ex, exist primarily within Him. But the essence itself takes a completely different uh, way of being in terms of existing on on its own. As for God Himself, there is no distinction between. There would be no extinction between his essence and his existence because his essence doesn't because his uh, existence doesn't require uh, the dependence or contingency of of an of another. So in terms of how God is as so in terms of how God is as such a mind, he is a mind in terms of the fact that he holds essences and ideas, notions, what it is to be something within him in the universal sense, and then. Can, and then, because he holds into the universal sense, he could create. He then can create things that exist independently of him in their own particular formal sense. So, with that in mind, God is a being because he holds, because he can hold the, because he can hold the essences of the universal notions. That is what it is to be, uh, something. Yet at the same, yet at the same time, uh, yet at the same time, because, because the way in which he exists is so other to us in terms of how his. Um, existence doesn't require his existence doesn't necessarily require a, a distinction between his essence. Then it, God becomes fairly hard to un understand because he's so simple, and that is where the analogies come in. And some analogies are better than others. For example, God being a mind is much more analogous than God being a stone because, in terms of his relationship to us, he holds our essences. Yeah. Uh, okay. Him from eternity. So, so here's here's how I'm going to address that. So, are you at all familiar with? Well, okay, actually, that's this is relevant. But here's here's the point. Um, let's let's take a a let's let's just imagine, for the sake of argument, that space is infinitely divisible. Um, let's let's imagine that there are no atoms. Let's just this is for the sake of argument. Uh, this is this is just a hypothetical situation. So. We have uh, a sphere. It can be of any size at all. Space is infinitely divisible. It has infinite many potentially ways that we can divide it. So we can we can then say that, that within those those infinitely divided uh, spaces, we can we can look at any fraction of that size. So we can say, well, okay, here's half the sphere. Let's not say a sphere. Let's just say an infinitely long rod, or, or not an infinitely long rod, but a, a rod with indivisible. Sorry, this is getting con confusing. Um, Would you like so, to use a ring? Maybe. <laughs> uh, let's. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, we'll do a ring. Um, so it doesn't even have to be infinitely divisible now. So we've got a ring. So we can specify any number of rotations around the ring, um, and we can we can um, 
assign those number of not rotations, but 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 um, what's the word? Uh, circumferences of the ring. We can we can we can specify any number of circumferences of the ring. Um, and in that sense, um, because that ring can be used to symbolize any number of, of circumferences, um, it can be used to symbolize literally anything. Any essence, any, any, any concept can be symbolized with it, depending on how you interpret it. Um, you, can, you can interpret that ring in an infinite number of ways, and as such, you could, if you have the right way of interpreting it, derive any bit of knowledge from it. Um, and as such, I don't see how that ring is distinct from God as being a being that, that holds these concepts. So if, if God is to be a mind, though, God has to have a particular way of experiencing them. That's what, what makes us different uh, from a rock. I mean, we, we have neurons that could hypothetically be interpreted in completely different ways than the ways that we do interpret them. But because we interpret them in a particular way, those symbols symbolize particular things. Um, uh, do you see what I'm getting at here? Um, uh, sorry, it's a bit hard for me to follow. I, okay. Know, yeah, going over this one more time, maybe then. I'll... Yeah, yeah. I can. I think I can make a better analogy. So, so, so take take the the uh, the 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 wall behind me. Um, that wall has has a a huge number of atoms in it. Um, and those atoms are all moving very subtly in particular ways. It's got an even larger number of electrons and 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 other elementary particles. Um, so one could come up with a system of interpreting those electrons and those other elementary particles and, and you and interpret that information in any way. So I could interpret each electron um, in one state as a one and each electron in another state as a zero and therefore get binary out of it. Now that I binary, I can plug that in to any number of, of, of programs which could interpret it in different ways. Because the ways of interpreting any set of information or any set of, 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 of any any set of symbols like that are infinite, I could interpret that information in literally any combination of ways. As long as I have the right interpreter, I could derive any information from it. I can I can I can this could be this could be representing this this is representing uh, the movie Titanic right now. This is also representing um, all of Stoic thought. This is representing everything. Uh, if you know how to interpret it properly. Mm -hmm. So because of this, it's representing everything, but it experiences nothing, presumably. Um, so it, this wall has, has the knowledge of squareness, if there is such a thing. This wall can be used to represent all of these pieces of information um, that are in God's being, but it experiences none of them. So this is why I think the analogy falls apart, and why I think it is much more appropriate to, to, to compare God to a rock, because the rock contains all that information as well, if you know how to interpret it. But the mind interprets things in a particular way. So, I see. did I make myself more clear this time? You did, but now the rock or the wall just comes across as being uh, a sim as being uh, symbolic for something, or being, uh, or just being, uh, and by symbolic for something, I mean uh, you use it to symbolize it in the way that uh, algebra and that uh, an algebraic x can be used to represent literally any number. It can be sure, or any you, concept. I'm sorry. Any concept as well, yeah. Any concept, any concept, yeah, any concept as well. Now, what I'm saying, but but the notion of xness or wholeness does not does not necessarily explain any particular. I think you're just uh, working. I think you're just working your way backwards from uh, one particular thing to to the universal, whereas God is. Uh, okay, but but here's the thing, though. If God holds all of the universals, mm -hmm. um. 
I mean, then my, my floor does as well. Presuming these are actual things, my, my floor could be used to represent uh, any of them. Any I'm, any object could be. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm worried about. Uh, I mean, there's there's an equivocation there too. I mean, um, it, it, God must experience things to be a mind, but how can he experience what he has already? Ex I mean, what has already happened to him? Right? He's he's timeless. So. It, it isn't isn't experience necessarily a temporal thing that we're that we're talking about, and, and in that case, isn't he exempt from that? Doesn't he just have to have? Yeah, the, well, he's the not well, himself. well, he's not necessarily. Well, he's not necessarily. Uh, um, one, all right, he is not necessarily uh, a a mind in terms of how we act as a mind in terms of experiencing sets of phenomena. Uh, for example. Um, uh, for example, when sure. I uh, and we've I agreed we've agreed on that, and we've we've instead agreed though that he is analogous to a mind insofar as that he holds concepts. But in that way, everything is a mind. Everything can be used to represent concepts. Everything can hold concepts in it. Anything can hold concepts in it. Uh, what what distinguishes the mind from from the not mind is the ability to experience those particular things in one singular way, to be set in one way of experiencing it. Um, but but so. but if if God doesn't experience those things, God cannot really. The analogy doesn't hold. Uh, so all right. So if someone who is uh, uh, so if someone who is comatose or so let's just say if there's someone who's comatose or if someone's asleep, at that point does he not have a mind because it's well actually I suppose sleep and dream. Well, let's just go with someone who's brain dead. At that point, does someone who is brain dead not have a mind because? That brain could ex that mind could exist in some way within the brain, uh, so if uh, especially he recovers. But yeah, it's a, it's, there be a point where he does not have where he does not have a mind. That's a hard question to answer. Um, yeah. I, I would say that, that it, it it it's unfortunately we're getting into kind of like dense philosophical water here. But I would answer probably that no, he doesn't have a mind at that point. Um, but the, 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 yeah, I mean, you're getting into neurobiology here, and, and what qualifies as brain dead is is sort of a that's conscious. Yeah. Subject also, so there's, there's, there's a few different issues that we might have to get into with that. Sure. Um, I'd be, I would be more, I would be more interested in to kind of bringing it back to, um, so, sort of maybe what might be considered a, a wrapping up thoughts here, guys, if we can. Um, right. I think we, I think we did a really great job of kind of getting into the meta argument of this, of this dialogue. I mean, we basically got to what what Hume is really talking about. Um, you know, the the idea of of analogy being, uh, in Incapable of getting us to um, a definite uh, uh, picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about the nature of God, um, and that and that it's very it, it can be very difficult to see where that analogy um, lines up exactly. Um, um, and so you know if uh, I don't know if if I had to kind of put it in a way, I mean he, he's he's. The, uh, much of the much of the first part of it here is, I mean, at least the first six parts are, are talking about the argument from design and the idea that um, um, because um, the universe is in order um, and there there seems to appears to be order to the universe, that that can only come from the ordering of a mind and that and that material in itself doesn't tend to order. Um, and I was curious about your guys' thoughts on that. I mean, that seems to be a very, a very uh, popular idea uh, at that time. But yeah. I, I think, I think now we we kind of have a different uh, idea about what order can come out of of materials now, right? It's, um, it's pretty much completely in opposition to our current understanding of physics. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it holds anymore. I, 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, but I, you know, before we before we get in too far here, I mean, I would like to say that this. I mean, how did you guys enjoy this dialogue? I mean, would you, would you, do you guys like feel like it's got a lot in it that um, is useful, or do you, I mean, it, yeah. in the end, it, it seemed like we were kind of dancing maybe around some of the some of the paragraphs itself, but I think the concepts it brings up are are especially valuable. Um, and and uh, when we're talking about the the clash between theism and atheism, especially. I think it's a very good dialogue, and I, 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 we've previously mostly been recommending books by clear theists to atheists. We've been recommending that atheists read theistic writing, and in this case, I would recommend that everyone, regardless of where you are in this position, should read this. It's very interesting. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings up so many great um, arguments that I heard a lot of when I was growing up, and I feel like, you know, if I had read this earlier in my life, I would have maybe saved myself a lot of, you know, brain... Uh, pain, I guess you could call it. You know, a lot of effort, anyways, uh, that that I probably wouldn't have had to exert. Um, um, if, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cool. Um, Elijah, did, did you have anything to say there, bud? I haven't heard from you in a bit. I'm, yeah, I'm still there. Sorry. Yeah, I'm still here. Um, yeah, it's it's a very uh, quick way of of sort of tearing through this argument really fast. Not necessarily in a negative way, but you know, breaking breaking it down to um, several different variations of it and defenses of it. Um, and objections to it in one in one what is it actually fairly short I mean probably would be shorter than that conversation we just heard if it was in paper form <laughs> so you know what I mean it's like it, it is a, it is a very to the point uh, uh, work I really like it I've never really looked at it in as depth as I am now and I do want to say as far as like um, this issue we were talking about tonight uh, the next where we're, when we get into the way that the um, argument from design is presented here is, Presented not so much as an argument for the existence of God, but as a way to basically deal with this exact issue we've been discussing. You know what I mean? This issue of analogy—that's really where it starts. Uh, and hopefully, next time we'll be able to get into that a little bit. Cool. Yes. Yeah, so well, even more. <laughs> yeah, I think, right, right. I think that's a, I think that's a really good a really good point, Elijah. I mean, that's really what we're getting at here is is this this idea of analogy and how we can how we can base it. You know, how we can come to that conclusion of of this is how God is, you know, yep. and then give that analogy, you know, and I think there's, there is, there is this disconnect, and um, it, but it's, it's not necessarily unattainable, uh, right? I mean, I think several good defenses are, are kind of brought up in this, and I think that if we kind of have that in mind when we read it, um, and we come back at it next week, I think we could really um, have a really great insight into, you know, the, the problems with analogy and how we could best, you know, come to conclusions, anyways, or or at least agree to disagree on where where the the boundaries of our of our limitations uh, actually actually lie. Sorry, the boundary of our limit the limitations of our of our knowledge um, actually actually lie. Right. I'd agree. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and uh, it seems like we're wrapping it up here. Um. So. Um, uh, uh, could I just uh, quickly give my summation of? Uh, absolutely. Oh, sure. Please do. I, you you get twice the amount of time that we do. Three times the amount of time, Eddie's. Well, uh, I just actually all I need is a couple. From the point of view of uh, history, I actually really enjoyed this, especially learning about this era of um, the Enlightenment and philosophical development. I thought uh, just for the history alone, it's just exquisite. But for the philosophy of it, it's a terrific guide into uh, into debates regarding natural religion and where to come from in terms of uh, your position when delving into the argument. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm, I don't, I don't know if I have any closing thoughts. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I was, uh, 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 sorry, what did you say, Epicurus? 
I wasn't expecting that. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't really expecting it into that either, but um, it turned out to be very interesting. Hopefully oh, the yeah. viewers thought the same. Um, so oh, sure. I, I wanted to uh, I want to say a few things, though. So next week, will be John will be hosting another discussion on this, I think. Is that correct, John? Yeah, and uh, I believe on Tuesday I will be planning on, on another, dialo- uh, another, another dialogue on this dialogue. Um, a dialogue concerning dialogue concerning natural religion. What, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so uh, also, there's going to be a dialogue on Theotetus uh, on Friday. Um, I'm going to host that one. And there's another much bigger piece of news here, um, and that is we're now officially a real podcast. Uh, Elijah um, got uh, the podcast on iTunes. So if you prefer to view things, yes, definitely. Elijah, great work there. Um, Thank you, man. Yeah. If you prefer to listen to your podcast in MP3 form, uh, we're going to include links to the iTunes page um, in in all of the, the future, and I'm going to go back and edit at least the Preslogian episode so that you can find the link there. So, um, yeah, if you prefer MP3s, then there you go. Cool. Well, I think that's, yeah, I mean, with that, I think that's uh, that's a great note to kind of uh, end this broadcast on. And, uh, you know, I'd like to thank you guys again for for a great discussion. Uh, it really uh, got my brain just uh, flowing here. I've got a lot of things to ponder, actually. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, uh, you know, I think good homework for everybody this week would go home and think up uh, three arguments for an opposing viewpoint and uh, and try, try your best oh, yeah. to, uh, to defend it against yourself. Um, and I want to echo that. I, I very, very much enjoyed listening to you guys. Yeah. Definitely. And I, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Yeti. I mean, there's a, uh, there's a lot of, uh, atheists in this, in this discussion here. So I, uh, I know, I know it sometimes <laughs> seems like maybe. Hey, uh, I'm a big boy. I figure I could handle. I'm a big boy. I figure I could cool. handle it. And I, I like to think if I don't know something, I'm humble enough to admit it and see if I can't get back to you guys later. I'm I'm pretty sure you're receptive to the whole I don't know notion. Absolutely. Or at least the postponing of I don't know until you can get something definite later on. Absolutely. Yeah, but but yeah. I, I felt a little I felt a little less guilty about um the the odds when we were discussing things that were um written by theists. It was almost like you know. <laughs> At least the you know if if nobody else was helping you out, at least the uh, the author was on your side, right? But uh, yeah. But sometimes yeah. you're you're on the opposite side, so now now that doesn't seem to really. Even oh, matter. if you can't tackle David Hume, then uh, then you're in big trouble. Exactly. My that's <laughs> yeah, that's worse to live by, my friend. Uh, yeah, and and I I sorry if I got a bit aggressive there. I I was really I I, I don't mean to be unfair. I, I really wanna I really just wanna have this dialogue. And if I if I interrupted you, it is because I, I thought you may be going astray. So sorry about that. No worries. No, it's really hard to have these uh, conversations off the cuff for uh, both the people, especially I'm I didn't prepare. I know you didn't prepare, especially considering that um, we come in with these um, these notions beforehand that we didn't really get across clearly. Uh, uh, I felt I didn't get across clearly. I'm not sure how you felt about your presentation. I thought, I thought some of the I thought that last argument you made offhand was rather interesting. Uh, in terms of uh, doing all that, it can be uh, fairly hard because sometimes your opponent might uh, mishear you when he's trying to think of his own response or her own response, and that kind oh, of that's a good point. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Not to not to mention the fact that you might have two objections you have to think through before answering in a comprehensive manner. I mean. I just came up with this whole science notion because uh, well, that quote just meant to get me off at the right hand. So, yeah. Well, for the record, I wasn't raising an objection. I was raising a clarification point. Oh, clarification. Oh, I see. Yeah, no, I was just trying to – that was more for the sake of the listeners than anything else. No, thanks. Um, right. Cool. Yeah, no, and, and it's, I mean, it's, we're talking about really complicated subjects here, so it's really easy to fail to articulate our points very well. Like, I know that I've 
very often not done my points to service by by trying to express them. So it's that's a very common problem as well. Yeah, I mean these these sort of topics are not easy to cover, and I mean putting your words succinctly is clearly very hard. I mean David Hume makes it look a little easy, but um, <laughs> I think I think he put a lot of work into this dialogue. It's not quite as as uh, as as free flowing as a, as just a regular dialogue might be, yeah. right? And so, of course, you know he's speaking on everybody's part also. He apparently spent twenty six years writing the dialogue, though. So, well, oh well. It, so uh, I'm not. <laughs> it took 26 years from the beginning of the dialogue to when it was published, like shortly before his death. Um, so I, 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 I'm not surprised it's as pared down and eloquent as it is. It's very impressive, though. Mm, that it is. It's it's even better. I would actually, I dare say, it's even his mind, especially in terms of the time and place he was born, is is fairly advanced. He makes better arguments than. Uh, most of your tip than most of your typical internet users uh, right now in terms of uh, getting down to the crux of uh, God's existence, how we can know Him, uh, and I'm not speaking just against you atheists. I'm saying this as theists too. Uh, usually, oh, perfect. So, you, so you're only alienating internet users. That's yeah, oh, that's <laughs> all internet. of you. All of you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, typical perfect. internet our, users. Our viewership just dropped to zero. So I think that's about time to. Uh, to I'm attacking <laughs> the medium in which we're podcasting. <laughs> yeah. All right, oh, cool. Wow. With, that, with that, I think uh, you guys can say goodbye, and I'll uh, stop the broadcast. So thanks a lot, guys. Yep, See you later. Bye-bye. Right. Sounds great. Thanks, guys.